When I was getting started in tech, you know, 12 years ago, you didn't really see 20 year olds, 22 year olds coming out of nowhere and being able to build audience, you know, social credibility from people who matter. You kind of had to get attention in different ways. Um, and you, often it was by, by building something really interesting. One thing I think to really appreciate about dating for men is that it gets a lot better as you get older. <laughs> and I think it's hard to um, fully appreciate that. You, you asked me about SF politics and I said they're mostly you know, self-interested. To the extent that there is a, is a platform, I, I want to describe it a little bit. It's something like, it's okay to be an elite. <laughs> it's okay to want to be elite. It's okay to want your children to be an elite. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today is an episode I've been hoping to bring to you for a long time. I'm speaking with Eric Torenberg, the founder of OnDeck, Village Global, and, as we'll discuss in the episode, first employee at Product Hunt. He's also started three new podcasts, Upstream, Cognitive Revolution, and Moment of Zen, on which I've appeared as a guest. We discuss a variety of topics, Really, you'll see why I see Eric as one of the most insightful public commentators, as also someone who, and also someone who gives good advice on many of the topic areas that both me and hopefully all of you are interested in. We discuss his early career, venture capital, Silicon Valley as a growing media power, particularly the All In podcast, the ideas of Curtis Yarvin, investing for public impact, social desirability bias, elite theory, his idea of talk left and act right, and egalitarianism, artificial intelligence, and dating and advice for young people. Really, we've hit almost all of the From the New World bullet points that you're familiar with, so it's a great episode. It's almost four hours, and I really enjoyed all of it. So without further ado, here's Eric Torenberg. So you told me you were just coming in from another podcast. What was the most interesting thing you talked about there? I, uh, I recorded uh, two podcasts, so I will give you uh, two two different um, bullet points. So one I did with a um, someone in the creator space. Um, his name is Steph Smith. And, and we were talking about how um, the Mr. Beastification of, of creators, where basically creators are treating themselves as entrepreneurs in the sense that they're not just focused on how do they build the biggest content machine, but they're focused on how do they build uh, their content as a wedge uh, to get distribution, to then build products uh, to then sell to their audience. So Mr. Beast has this company Feastables, which made a hundred million in revenue already, um, where he's just selling, I believe it's it's burgers, um, maybe it's chocolates. So it's kind of like, you know, more basic products, but Mr. Beast just raised money from investors at over a billion dollar valuation and so the question is, you know, in order to do that, investors need to believe they can, you know, have potential to 100x their money. So can Mr. Beast build or partner with people who build software products? And, and it kind of turns the um, sort of venture creation model on its head where people typically focused on building products first and then finding distribution. But now in partnership with creators, uh, companies can get distribution first and then build products on top of. So that was one conversation. And then the second conversation that I'll pause was with Mike Solana for Moment of Zen. And we were comparing 
the response to uh, to AI uh, uh, with uh, the response to crypto. Because for the past few mm. years, the response to crypto, the mainstream response is, hey, this doesn't really do anything. What's the use case? This is uh, all hype, et cetera, or, or, or worse, you know, fraud. And the response to AI is kind of the opposite. Like this does too much. This is going to take over. This is, <laughs> this is way too powerful. And, it, and another difference um, is that the call, the, the, a lot of the critics in AI are technologists. So the call is coming from inside the house, so to speak where there's kind of an intra tech uh, debate as to whether, um, you know, we should be uh, ex- accelerators or, or, or pausers or doomers, whatever you want to call them. So, so those were the, those were two uh, conversations I had. Right. It's interesting because I have, I mean, especially now I'm trying to, you know, really circulate through the beltway through um, DC and that's not the picture I get about AI policy there, you know, like AI policy on one hand, there are some people who are worried about really just fitting it into the same old political shoeboxes. You know, what if the AI says, you know, racist facts? Um, and then there are people who are, once again, fitting it in their old shoeboxes, like, oh, what does this mean for great power competition? And actually, that I'm a little bit more amenable to, both in terms of their kind of people who I find more respectable. And I think it's a much more serious issue. Like, China is a big deal. But is it, you know, is it the entirety of the deal when it comes to AI? Is it really the kind of shelling point that everyone should be focusing on? I don't think so either. So I think it's the case where it might be true that among the people who are building the technology, this is the kind of mainstream discussion. It's like, oh, is AI going to create an apocalypse? Are we going to get run out out of control, misaligned intelligence? But I think like when it comes to the question of whether... AI is, or whether and how AI is regulated, there'll be much more of an influence from the kind of like academic, you know, quote unquote, woke types, um, more so probably at the FTC. And then you'll get, you know, I'm not sure if they're still considered right wing anymore, but at least people who you you would use to consider right wing national security hawks um, at, um, yeah, at um, Department of Defense. Where have you netted out in terms of your interests with uh, with AI? Because you know, early on, you were um, you know writing about kind of the excess of chat, you know, the woke excess of ChatGPT, you know, et cetera. And um, you haven't been as vocal about it since. I'm I'm curious how you've um, evolved your thinking, or as as the sort of the the you know the chessboard has evolved too. Yeah, it's kind of been focused around around what I just said, right? I, I can. Yeah. And I do say, like, I, I do like talking to the people who listen to the podcast or who read my writing. I, I'm very good friends with them. But at the end of the day, there, there's kind of like two things that I could do, right? I could spend more time doing basically public conversations or public writing or like private conversations and private writing. And at least from my current point of view, I think the latter is just, you know, thousands of times more effective really like like literally you know one second spent you know talking to um say say like a national security contact right is more likely to have influence than like one set or than like one one hour writing um writing a blog post and you know, there, there's like a there's like a mean, right? I'm going going to still be working on the newsletter. I'm working on a very long article um, about actually specifically about 
the kind of AGI, uh, effective altruist concern, and my skepticism on why machine learning progress is not going to be kind of um, continually exponential, is not going to continue at the rate that it is for much longer because of many specific technical factors. Um, we, we can talk about this uh, a bit if you'd like, but I'd, I'd really like to dive into actually some of the stuff that you've been working on as well. Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let you, uh, I'll let you guide. Right. Yeah. I just want to make sure, I just want to make sure because some people are really interested in the AGI arguments and then some people aren't. Right. So you, you've been a very successful investor already. You have multiple companies as well. And now you started a podcast. It seems like, it seems like to me the opposite trajectory of a lot of people my age where they um, will start a podcast, will gather some kind of social media following and use that to leverage, use that kind of contact. Like, like you said earlier, a bit like you said earlier, get the distribution first and then try to build a startup afterwards. Um, so, so why do you think, why do you think, you know, like the best use of your time is uh, doing a startup? Do you think that, or sorry, not a startup, doing uh, media, starting three podcasts? Um, do you think that? And if so, why? Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. The, um, when I was getting started in tech, uh, you know, 12 years ago, you didn't really see 20 year olds, 22 year olds coming out of nowhere and being able to build um, audience and you know social credibility from people who matter the way that, you know, you're able to today, the way that Darkash is able to today, the way that a number of people are able to today. And so you kind of had to get attention in different ways. Um, and you, often it was by, by building something really interesting. And the thing that I got a little bit of attention for was, um, and I was, you know, the first employee founding team, not the not the CEO, was Product Hunt. Um, and so that's what put me on the map um, in the sense that you've gotten on the map via, um, via your podcast and via your writing. And I used Product Hunt to, um, you know, be able to help entrepreneurs, basically, because we could help them get customers. For people who don't know, Product Hunt is a discovery platform for startups. It's almost the equivalent of being a, a journalist in that you get to give people traffic, but without any of the kind of, uh, you know, emotional loading of, or connotations and negative connotations of being journalists, only the positive parts. And I, right, I would the, say it's closer to something like uh, Expedia, right? Mm -hmm. where, where like Expedia ranks hotels yep. um, and, and flights, Product Hunt ranks, you know, software startups. Yes, yes. Um, and, and highlights them. And the, um, I used that to build a network of entrepreneurs. Uh, I then started investing in, in those in, in entrepreneurs that were doing well on, on product time and using that as a as a way to get on cap tables. Um, and that's, you know, fast For forward. For the audience, what's a cap, cap table? Oh, sure. Uh, and, you know, when startups raise money from investors, the collection of, of, of investors is known as the cap table. So, right. So you basically get in the door, you're investing early in some tech startups. Yes. Right. If you're, if you're in the music world, it's like A&R for a record label, you know, you're discovering artists, you're discovering startups and um, some investment firms would give me money on their behalf to invest because I had the access and because I had the relationship. Um, and so um, my, my advice to anyone who wants to be an investor is to find a way to build a deal flow machine that makes them money. Um, because if they can build a deal flow machine that makes them money, they can sustain themselves. I either make money part, I pay them a salary, um, and they can get access to deals, which they can use the money to, to invest. It used to be that you had to work your way up 
the totem pole of a VC firm, which could take 10, 20 years. Um, but because of their, these new ways of, of building media, whether it's a newsletter uh, where you're an expert on a different category or a podcast or a um, or kind of a you know community uh, ranking startup rating site like we built with Product Hunt, it's easier to get in the door and connect directly to entrepreneurs and investors will will really respect that. And so what I'm doing now is basically realizing how helpful it was to have built Product Hunt for my investing career, how helpful it was to have built OnDeck for my investing career. And you can think of OnDeck as a, um, for people who don't know, it helps people find co-founders. Um, so if Product Hunt helped startups find customers um, or get distribution, get traffic, OnDeck helped them find early hires and co-founders. And so I'm interested in building more tools like OnDeck and Product Hunt to have an investing advantage. As maybe we'll get into venture capital in a bit, but in, in you know, money is green and money is a commodity and there's thousands of investors out there all competing for the best entrepreneurs. And venture is different than other asset classes in that the entrepreneur picks the investor. And so you have to be, you have to bring something to the table. And so if you don't bring, you know, 20 years, 30 years of operating experience at the highest level, which I, I didn't uh, when I when I started, I have a little bit now, but certainly not to what I just described, you, you need to have actual products or, or service that, that can help entrepreneurs at a meaningful scale. Anyways, I don't, I don't want to ramble too much about VC, but what I, one thing- Don't I'm, worry, this is yeah. a pro rant <laughs> podcast. Yes. Um, um, I, I'm, sure, I, I'm sure a lot of people in my audience want the insight about VC. Yeah, so I, I'm building a podcast network and also a newsletter network because I think- um, it's basically this trend that that I mentioned. People are starting to, you know, companies are built audience first. And so I want to build um, different media properties in different categories for different um, positions. Um, and I want them to um, be able to access these distribution, you know, th these customers that are previously hard to reach um, or otherwise hard to reach and then invest in companies that sell to them or build companies that sell to those customers. So um, right now I'm starting kind of more, you know, general interest, more, more high level to build the, build the audience, but I'm, I'm going to launch a series of more dedicated, specific, uh, you know, vertical specific podcasts. My first one is a, is an AI one, um, but also position based podcasts that, uh, you know, and we've seen this in the sports world. There are these like media conglomerates like the ringer or barstool or the athletic um, and tech media hasn't really innovated much. <laughs> uh, there've been uh, a few individuals, Lenny Wojcicki, who's got a product management newsletter. Um, Harry Stebbings has a VC podcast and he's only like 25 years old and he's got $400 million under management just because he's built an amazing um, VC podcast. Uh, Packy McCormick is another example. And so I, I want to, I believe that there are more of these people out there who are practitioners, who are experts, who can um, make more money doing what Lenny, Packy, and Harry do than, than they do at their sales job or their engineer job or whatever job they currently have and have a more interesting life. And so I want to aggregate those people, help fund them, get them off the ground and build a collective of them. And in some way, it also intermediates the journalists too, because these people are actual experts and um, it's expert to expert sort of, uh, you know, content where as opposed to just a, you know, general middleman who's not an expert at all and is often, um, you know, in a different class and has counter incentives in some ways. Um, and so... Right. It's, it's very funny. I remember talking about this with Jonathan Rouse. He kind of describes 
journalists, and, and I think like this is actually accurate to some degree. Um, he, he compares kind of like journalism and social media and like journalism as being between a more kind of like, uh, he doesn't use this word, but this is how I interpret it, kind of elite, uh, basically elite consumers of news who have basically norms around um, basically like r- filtering out a lot of, I think like this is in fact the filter of low status, but I think like correctly filters out a lot of um, incorrect information with some biases, of course, of information that they fail to filter out. But like when I was speaking with him, I actually had, you know, I, I had the same understanding of kind of tech media, right? That a lot of tech media is kind of like insular and it, it's insular in a similar way, I think, to how um, how kind of legacy media is insular in that you have these concentric circles, you have like, you have the general public, they have certain predispositions that lead to bad media patterns. And then New York Times comes up and they, uh, and like Richard Anania has kind of convinced me of this, right? Our mutual friend. Um, and he's uh, convinced me that, you know, there are a lot of virtues to the New York Times, Jonathan Rauch as well. Um, there are a lot of virtues in kind of circumscribing this smaller circle in which you have to observe these norms. Uh, and, and then like tech media, I think like, obs- does kind of the same thing in, in creating an even smaller circle. Like a lot, not a lot of people I think can really listen to like uh, your podcast with uh, Nathan LeBen's cognitive revolution and really get everything, right? Maybe some people can listen to it and still enjoy it and get a lot of things. But to me, it feels like very insidery in a way that I think is like generally positive in terms of its effect on the content there. But yeah. like, the reason I'm saying this is that it all leads to like this one one big trade off, right? Which is kind of uh, private power or elite power versus public power, right? You want to, on one hand, create, you know, if you're going full Mr. Beast, then you're creating this kind of public, really like any man appeal. Or if you're going like cognitive revolution, or if you're going even further than that, I don't know. Um, actually, I'm not. I'm not completely sure on like a tech example. Or like a tech example, actually, like a machine learning example is just like papers, right? Like, like, like you're building like Neurips or something, right? Where would you put your project around that? Like, like, is it closer to the elite end or is it closer to like the public end? I would say most of it is closer to the elite end. If we're talking about like, you know, how technical versus versus um, versus accessible, but I mean, the best right. things, you know, All In, for example, is appreciated, the, you know, the tech podcast is appreciated by insiders and it's broad, um, meaning, and it's like deeply popular. It's one of the most popular tech podcasts in the world. I think it's one or two. And so I think, I mean, that in some sense, like, you know, I wonder if it's a false trade-off, if, if, if All In and others are able to achieve both. Like, is that really what the, what the like, Lex is another example, right? Like, I mean... All in is truly insidery in that they get in the weeds and stuff. Lex is more like, what's the meaning of life and stuff. Yeah. All in, I think is like a better example because right. I listen to it and I see it as, you know, like I, I often have to follow up a lot, especially with a lot of the financial stuff. I'm less experienced with that. And, and just almost everything that Friedberg um, mentions with like the biotech. Um, I'm always, you know, having follow up Google searches to me, it feels like a very, yeah, that that I think is actually a spectacular example. What what do you think is the secret of their success? Because I I do feel it as like a, it definitely gives very strong kind of elite vibes. 
yep. um, to me and to like, not just to me, but to a lot of other people who I know, but it also, like you said, it, it has like, just empirically, it has kind of mass market appeal, right? I think there's a few things going on there. I mean, first off, they're undoubtedly successful um, and they're undoubtedly uh, like they're more successful and more intelligent than other people doing tech podcasts or tech journalism. <laughs> um, and then they're also um, good friends slash have good banter. And that's entertaining. And, and you get a window into their, you know, their personal lives a bit, which, which are also very, very entertaining. Their personal kind of like, you know, how they spend their wealth. So it's always interesting, like hearing, you know, centimillionaires talk to each other um, kind of candidly is not something that most people hear about. But then they're also, you know, quite good at describing current events in in ways that are easy ish to to understand. So you feel like you're getting smarter listening to it. You're enjoying it. But then also, and I, I think one big thing is they've introduced basically like they've moved the Overton window pretty significantly. And, and they're not like a right wing like podcast or anything, but they like to give you an example of the rest of tech media. TechCrunch's main podcast is called Equity. <laughs> like that just gives you a sense. Is, for like, is that a pun though? You know, like raising equity. Like, I, 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 I think they mean it in the reducing disparities. Uh, okay. That, that that is the number one interview question. I'm not half teasing, but you know, to ask people like, what does equity mean? It's either reducing disparity or upsiding companies, and that kind right. of tells you yeah. what, what they emphasize. Tells you what you need to know. And like Chamath, you know, like a year ago or something, said like, you know equity is problematic or whatever. Like, I don't believe in equity or whatever. Like, and that, like, you know, it's interesting because you came into this world in the last, you know, few years, but relatively recently, like, it would have been interesting for you to come in like 2014 or 2015, like every podcast episode you have would have gotten you canceled. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm teasing, but, but I, I say that to say that the Overton window was just so different. There was just such a strident, um, like narrow window of what was what was acceptable, and to question equity would have been insane. Um, and I think a lot of tech people there's just this wave of massive preference falsification because people saw what was happening in their companies. Either were getting kind of like destroyed by activists, or you know, and they saw what was happening in San Francisco if they lived in San Francisco and like okay, that's getting destroyed, and they wanted to push back, but anytime they did push back they were met with, oh, are you a Trump supporter? Like, and faced between the option of like, you know, on their knees, um, you know, like uh, apologizing to leftists or being seen as a, um, you know, normie, you know, Rube, um, Trump sympathizer, they would rather do the, the, be on their knees. And once that kind of went away in terms of the, the inspector of Trump uh, went, went away, Basically, it became okay. There was just this wave of massive preference qualification that all in helped kind of pierce where they were just saying common sense things. And a number of people were like, I actually believe that. And so um, it just gave them a new voice. I think Mike Solana has done a fantastic job of this as well, um, of not being like overtly right wing, but just being common sense. Um, you having common sense, being funny, being smarter, like just better on every dimension. And I think that's why um, both Solana and Pirate Wires and All In have just blown up because they, they offer an alternative perspective that just resonates more with, with tech people than, than the one that journalist has because they are tech people. Right. 
what do you think of the market uh, marketplace of ideas hypothesis, right? The idea is that, is that, you know, if you just let people discuss the best ideas will ultimately win out. Um, it, it does not seem that the best ideas <laughs> or, or the, it does not seem that the truest ideas um, win out. You, you had Curtis on your show and he, he has written and talked a lot about that. Um, I mean, there are a lot of untrue ideas that, you know, uh, seem to pass on for many, many generations. So I think the marketplace of ideas maybe makes sense for like fit ideas, i.e. ideas that just like have some sort of, um, you know, unfair advantage. But it, it seems like, and this is what I would say, you know, the, the Jonathan Rauches of the world, you know, he wrote Kindly Inquisitors in 1992. And I think that was like a really seminal book. That's like the best case for like free speech, best case for classical liberalism, best case for marketplace of ideas. But it, it, it feels like it's turned out that, um, you know, when you're advocating for free speech, you're not going to censor anyone. You're kind of putting a hand behind your back. And when you're, um, when someone sees that you, you play by those rules, they will, um, you know, leverage those rules against you. They will, um, you know, censor, they, they will encourage free speech when it supports their aims, but when they are using speech that, um, you know, that, or when they're using a liberal methods and, you know, the only way to fight them is to use liberal methods back, they will say, um, they will use your liberalism against you. So, um, I mean, there's a couple of different responses to it. I, I don't think true ideas win. I think fit ideas win. And, um, you know, if someone plays behind with a hand behind their back, they're, they're often going to lose. And that, that's what happens to uh, you know, classical liberals, what happens to libertarians. It's what happens to many people in the, in the gray tribe who are not willing to, not really willing to fight. Yeah, it's interesting to me because um, at least my interpretation of the past few years is that as kind of the limits of censorship have really been reached, by you know like vaguely left wing like i didn't even i wouldn't really even call them left wing at this point but you know like people concerned with quote-unquote disinformation as the limits have been reached they kind of like actually improved their arguments um like for example just bidenism over clintonism right bidenism is like a genuine innovation both in terms of affect like like a lot of right-wingers who listen to this podcast underrate this no, but a lot of normal people, normally even like center right people, you know, really, you know, like the Biden vibe. They yeah. like the Biden kind of um, almost like appeasement, right? That, that's what it kind of seems like, right? Not in terms of foreign policy, but in terms of like, you know, I hear you guys. I hear like, like really like maybe still disagreeing with right wing voters who you might meet on the streets, but basically saying, you know, like he wants to live in the same country as people who disagrees with him. Now, like you might argue, like, like it's fair to argue that that doesn't, that's not actually reflected in his policies, but as a kind of like political figure, right. I think like people, people under analyze Bidenism, right. People are still analyzing like Trumpism. Like, I think there's a reason Biden won. And uh, I do think Biden won. And like, it's actually like pretty obvious, at least like the places to get started in thinking about Bidenism. And so like to, to return to the root topic, like the reason why I bring this up is like, um, th th there's this quote from uh, the last psychiatrist, another kind of online blogger, uh, who says, who said, uh, knowledge is a defense against not having power. So like people who don't have power, 
they make like logical arguments because that's basically the only thing that they have. And I think this is like a very good description of EA of uh, effective altruism. But uh, yeah, I, I do think that's like a better predictor of kind of what's where good arguments will emerge from than just the, the mainstream like marketplace of ideas hypothesis. Um, well, so where will they emerge from? Uh, they'll they'll emerge from the places that see that have reached basically what they can do with power, right? Basically, if, if I've done all I can with hard power, I'll do what I can with soft power. This is the idea. Yeah, it's a few responses. So one, I think right wing people have to be surprised with Biden on a few not not just vibe, uh, you know, um, to- uh, topics, but also actual policies, like in terms of his hard line against China and and. And some some other things. I, right, I, right. Were... It's funny, right? Like people who are more right wing than me, they, they they want to be you know tough on China. I actually you know I think that the the trade war stuff is probably self destructive and has worsened inflation. But <laughs> it, it's interesting, yeah. Like people people who are you know right enough to support like or like people who support basically like the Trump policy in China. Like Biden has emulated a lot of that. Yeah, I um. I remember Curtis said before uh, Trump, um, before 2020, that he wanted Biden to win because, um, you know, the way he evaluates candidates is whether they help their friends or my friends and punish their enemies. And he saw Trump as helping uh, his enemies and hurting his friends, Um, which which is to say that even on if you had Trump's goals and aims or sympathized with 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 them, you'd prefer Biden. And at the time. Um, people, uh, you know, people were very skeptical of, of Curtis's claim, like, oh, it sounds clever and cute, but, you know, winning by losing doesn't seem to to make much sense. But if you're, you know, anti-woke or right-wing to some degree, um, you have to admit that the culture has radically shifted in your favor in the, you know, since, since Trump got out. And so it is interesting. Like, if you think that the, if you think as Curtis does, that the uh, president has very little power and, um, you know, a fraction of the power that they should have, then maybe, maybe Curtis, you know, maybe that view keeps making the argument that, Hey, let's, let's get more Bidens, people who are effectively, you know, ineffectual, um, but don't present the same boogeyman to the left that enabled, um, kind of excess leftism to, to expand significantly, um, as we saw in 2016, 2020. Here's a question I want to ask. So, so how much of the post, you know, post Trump new right do you think is like downstream of Curtis? Do you think like agrees with him on his like major precepts? I think you know, there's the quote uh, Anne Rand has like all of, um, or sorry, about Anne Rand where her heroes are fake but her villains are real. I, I think similarly, like it's like Curtis's solutions are fake, but his, his like identification of the problems are real. Like his analyses are real. Like, I, I think he's convinced a lot of libertarians to be more right, like of why they're losing <laughs> to be more right wing. I, I think he's given people a mental model for for uh, governance, um, for how governments work. That that makes sense. I mean, I think he's been very um, influential in helping tech people just understand um, politics and power and the kind of, um, you know, uh, the combination of. Uh, corporate and public power uh, combined to, as it 
in terms of like crowning winners and cementing, you know, um, uh, incumbents. And I think Twitter is this kind of great culmination of it where it's a thing that Curtis has, has, um, you know, wanted for a long time, which is someone to take over an existing entity. In his case, he wants the Curtis wants the government in Elon's case was Twitter and just say, Hey, you know, uh, there's a new sheriff in town and actually you're not verified New York times. And actually Dogecoin is going to be the thing, like just basically like shit all over the symbols that, that they, they, they hold dear. And, you know, I, I think to some degrees he's done the playbook to some degrees, he's probably botched it significantly, but um, you know, does that happen in an era without Curtis? Uh, I don't think so. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, does Elon know who Curtis is? I don't even know. I, I don't, I don't, he certainly hasn't read Curtis probably, but I think it's been filtered through a number of people. Um, so yeah, I do think Curtis is pretty um, influential. I do think he's not getting credit for that, probably for re- like for reasons like people don't want to publicly um, associate um, with him. Um, but um, I, I think that now Curtis has drastically cleaned up his image and I think he's done a fantastic job in the past like couple of years. Um, so, so he's changed things for himself. He's not, he's not courting, um, controversy in the same way that he was perhaps in the past decade. Um, but I think, I think you see, you do see a new tech, right? It, it doesn't use the words right. And it shouldn't. Um, and it doesn't, it, it, it truly is not, um, you know, there it's not right wing in the sense that it's, it's pro choice. It's, um, pro gay marriage. It's, it's probably pro immigration. So I, I think on meaningful, um, you know, policy, um, you know, decisions, it, it, it differs significantly. Is but, libertarians who care about power a good, a good label? Um, it, it's, it's, it's not a bad label. I, I prefer you say gray tribe or something because it's not libertarian. Like they're not, they're actually want to use the state. You know, it's, it's like even Tyler Cowen, like he's not a libertarian. He's state capacity. What's the difference between state capacity, libertarianism and populist nationalism? I think it's, it's like two things. I mean, like, I'm not, you know, I don't want to speak for Tyler, but I will do so anyway. <laughs> I don't know, like, this is not necessarily representative of, of what he actually thinks, but is my best guess at what he thinks. I'll, I'll say that, right? Like, he, he would distance himself uh, from uh, from kind of, like, the new right or from kind of nationalist populism by a kind of... Um, he basically thinks that the, the populists are far too... Uh, skeptical and are far too antagonistic towards people who are left-wing. He, he believes much more in compromise. Um, I mean, Tyler does. Uh, I, and I would think that's the main difference. Yeah. I um, I, I think it's mostly a brand thing. Like, um, you know, conservatives have a bad brand. <laughs> Populist nationalism has a, a bad brand. It has a low IQ brand. It has a um, kind of reactionary brand. I mean, just look at Richard Hanania's disgust um, towards towards them. Um, and and so, but so it, it's great. Tra- it's trying to be something that's different. It's a little bit, you know, like one way of putting it, it's the midwit meme, and they're on the other side of the the meme, the, the high IQ side that kind of has some similar conclusions to the common sense lower IQ side, but just doesn't want to be associated with them. So they they need a new word. And it, I think this is where libertarians used to be. But I, I think the main difference here is that um, they realize just kind of like how infeasible, uh, you know, and unlikely libertarianism, it, libertarianism is. 
and how we actually do need a functioning government. We need state capacity. We need a government to get out of the way in a bunch of different places, but we also need it to do the things that it does well, like, you know, handle crime. Um, so yeah, I would say more, more gray tribe that, that understands power. Right. I would say that like a big, um, the thing that libertarians don't get credit for is that they kind of had the political theory, right? Like this is just like public choice theory, right? Yeah. Totally. Um, concentrating, uh, benefits, dispersing costs it's very much um that's actually quite similar to the burnham um to the burnham understanding of political theory right uh james burnham someone who's quoted a lot uh nowadays um on especially in those kind of like gray tribe circles but what's what's most interesting i i think is that like this is this is a central question to hmm yeah, this I think is actually the central question to like what should the strategy be, and like the thing that actually separates kind of like you know new right and libertarians is like Democrat exceptionalism versus Republican exceptionalism, right? Like, like the the libertarian view is that you know Democrats are just much better at creating people who would actually be willing to work for the state. They're much more basically like predisposed for geographic and psychological reasons and you know the republican equivalent of lena khan is not gonna spend a decade toiling away to be you know ftc chair he's gonna become uh, a very successful entrepreneur and maybe that's better for society even right but it means that they're not going to have as much power and the best thing you can do is just destroy um the federal bureaucracies and defund them or, or like the new, or like the new right view is that actually this is due to specific strategic decisions. The reason why the right loses in bureaucracies is because it does not have basically a talent pipeline for creating bureaucracy for creating people who would actually take these positions, or for you know finding them, recruiting them, helping them along their journey. Um, and yeah, to, to me, like it's not it's not one or the other, right? Both of these things matter to some extent. But uh, what, what do you think? Like, where, where do you fall on the kind of uh, on the kind of spectrum there? Well, well, first, let me just say we were, you know, you mentioned effective altruism earlier and effective altruism is right. getting bashed a lot these days. It's, it's punching back. And um, Antonio on my podcast. Yeah, seeing uh, what like the regime press is doing to Eliza Yukowski is just so sad. Like, you know, like I'm I am one of the people who makes very, very like strong arguments against the kind of AI doom things and like man it, it still feels it, it almost feels like a false victory you know to see really like basically slandered coming from you know Vox and from uh Time and whatever right or not Time Time actually published Yudkowsky but like a lot of a lot of mainstream press or you know regime press um are really just, I, I think on this issue in particular, it, it just like hits their sweet spot of like, oh, we're, we're just going to like drop all pretenses of being intellectually honest and caring about the facts. Like they could have written in like an intelligent, like I'm going to write an article, um, a very long article, like specifically because this is a difficult problem to argue for, you know, putting a lot of time into writing a clean article. Like if you're the New York times, if you're like supposedly like an educated, intelligent person, like that's what you would do. 
Um, and instead, no, they're, they're just writing really like, I think this is, this is the affect of this podcast that I think makes it special is that like Richard Nania like has like this, he he describes like left-wing ideology as kind of like a disgust at like right-wing, right-wing aesthetics or right-wing preferences. Yeah. And like, I think like this podcast is kind of like the, the nested version of this, right? Where it's like, and, and not just like not just simply disgust, right? But that but but that is the vibe or like contempt. Yeah. No, I think Con- it's... contempt at like this um this like not quite egalitarian but like status oriented way of approaching things that like is I think like closer to like if you if you think of like truth and whatever we're comparing it to, there's maybe, you know, like a ten percent correlation of like whatever the um you know whatever the conservatives are doing like like really like the like the normie con like the boomer cons are doing and then like maybe there's like 20 percent correlation with whatever the new york times doing and you know looking at this it's just like 20 percent really and you guys like dare to call yourself you guys really dare to like want to censor it's just it's just so childish and lacking in foresight (sighs) right what, did it cut you off? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Let me say a couple of things. So first, and we can return to this. I just want to say, it's, you know, effective altruism has been a punching bag, but there's another universe where the markets didn't tank and SBF was still, you know, worth $30 billion or, you know, whatever uh, FTX was, was worth. And EA had tens of billions of dollars under its direction and could actually accumulate some real political power. Let's say, you know, um, Biden wins the, the next election and SBF's the biggest donor and he's, you know, he's where Teal was in 2016. He's putting all, all EA people in um, in government, although, you know, Teal probably could have done a lot more of that, but um, there probably weren't, weren't that many people to put in. And so EA is actually an interesting example because it's, it's both a punching bag, but it's also like they they got close to something. They, they got close to something, closer to something than I think libertarians have ever, have ever gotten close. Like EA. Um, no, no, no. Go for it. I don't. I don't see any picture of DC where you can. Like, like, I'm honestly like, do do you like? My first instinct was like, do you actually believe this? Like, I don't. No, especially like democratic. Policy, is so inert and like. Well, I, I guess EA like, was basically democratic policy. <laughs> like, um, like, uh, I, I guess what I'm saying is. I see EA, the movement, getting power in that world. I don't see like um, EA pushing back on any core, you know, democratic principles or, 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 you know, DNC principles, but I see them getting their pet causes in in there, you know, animal rights. I don't know, like things that the DNC doesn't really care about or is sure have this. Like this is a hypothetical, but I, I mean, we can also bet on the current case, right? I would bet, you know, pretty insane odds that you know, that the next Democratic, whenever the, the Democrats want to do some kind of enforcement regulation on AI, it will be on, like, quote-unquote, like, equity grounds instead of on um, EA grounds, right? Like, they're, they're, like, 
for every for every staffer who's kind of convinced by the AI doom arguments, there are at least ten who are convinced by like the disinformation argument, and like another ten who are convinced by like the the equity argument. Like, I I don't. Like just on an empirical level, I just don't believe yeah. this is well, true. We're 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 saying different things. I agree with you in everything you just said. I don't think Elazar Yudkowsky, although we'll get, let's get to him in a minute, would be like you know having some role. <laughs> you know, like yeah, Elazar is just too smart. Like like exactly. here's the th- like like this is the main thing, right? Like when Repub- like when Hanania calls like the Republican Party like the stupid party. Like like here's the thing: the Democratic Party is like impermeable to smart people like it is like it's it's entire kind of like credentialization and routinization system is like a system specifically filtering out like people who would actually be kind of like people people exactly like eliza yudkowsky actually this is the thing like the, the the regime press specifically as like a mechanism if we were to construct like an archetype of the person that the regime press is meant to politically assassinate, it would be Eliza Yudkowsky. This kind of like extremely smart, um, obviously like I disagree with him on technical issues, but like passionate, you know, focused, and honestly like somewhat autistic, you know, like the Democratic Party is kind of anti-intelligence in that way. And the Republican Party is like maybe, you know, like I, I kind of agree with, or like I think this is empirical evidence that you know, like the average, like the median Republican voter is like slightly lower IQ, and that's fine. But like the elite levels of the Republican Party, both contain you know many people, many people even in our like mutual circles, right? Contain many people who are you know these exceptional people, and are is just so much more permeable. Like this is the reason why I just like completely disagree with this characterization. Like the Democratic Party is a party that cannot be smart. Well, the Republican Party is like a party of like high variance, and to me, like like you're familiar with you know like the, the like the founder theory, you know like Samuel Burry's stuff, right? Like to me, like if you are a smart person who who wants like some kind of career, like let's say you just have like no kind of like aesthetic preference, right? I, I think it would be like abundantly clear that the Republican Party is kind of like the home for where you would where you'd go for that. A couple responses there. One is the, I think EA would end up looking more like, like think more Bill Gates than Eliza Yudkowsky, right? Like Bill Gates is very sure. smart. <laughs> um, you know, sure. I've, I've, I've been in rooms with Bill Gates and he's talking to founders with different, in different industries and he knows the industry is better than the founders. Like, um, so it would be this corporatized, you know, DNC sanitized version. I, I think what EA had, meaning EA, in my opinion, had transcended Eliza like in a bad way, had to transcended Yudkowsky. I mean, Richard Hanania wrote about this, right? He, he said EA is like in a fork in the road and they could, you know, um, go woke. I, you know, uh, yeah, they, they, or, they must be anti-woke or die, right? Yes. And I, I think they had already, I think Richard Hanania was, you know, posting that like hopefully, but I think that decision had already been made. And I think, you know, short of SPF having, you know, an Enron plus made off level, you know, extinction, I think EA was on the path to, Kind of DNC establishment um, level politics that, that has nothing to do with Yukowski. It's EA name only. It's like, you know, uh, you know, talk. Yeah, about- yeah. I was although I think it actually does go deeper than that. Like I was arguing about this with Rocco, 
like EA is fundamentally based on the harm principle. It's it's fundamentally based on like JS Mill, you know, like how do we stop yeah. people from being harmed? And and I think that kind of like neurotic affect is intrinsically left wing. Like like maybe it's smarter, right? Like I I agree or like I definitely would agree that it's like much less dumb and not subject to kind of like the specific, you know, conspiracy theories that the left wing establishment believes. Yep. But I still think it's intrinsically left left wing in the same way that kind of like, you know, like, I don't know. It, it's hard coming up with a version on this with the right, because like a lot of the right is also kind of intrinsically left wing, like Christianity is sort of intrinsically left wing. But um, yeah, yeah in, in the same way that like Nietzsche, this is a good example, like, like Nietzsche, you know, like, uh, would not necessarily, you know, support either party. I think I talked with Brett Anderson about this, would not necessarily su- support either party today. But I think like, by that kind of affect is intrinsically uh, right wing. But sorry, go on. One thing we have to wrestle with, or any any person has to wrestle with, is that you know most competent people, whether they're running big corporations, if they're uh, you know technical engineers, if they are you know running hedge funds or very successful in finance, um, most of them are like left wing. <laughs> um, there are some that are disagreeable and just seeking truth above all else. But most people um, at that level um, tend to be tend to be left wing and, and not just like in the last five years, although it's, it's obviously been like all of them or less like there's been such a polarization. But in general, they, they tend to to be more left. And so to your point earlier about it filtering out smart people, I think it filters out like disagreeable, truth seeking above all else. But that is separate from like deep competence and even like technical competence and so um those things i I think you can filter no i I don't mean that like the democratic party says you know like if you're a smart person don't vote for us but you if you want to have like the maximum impact as like a smart person if you want to enter and change the direction of the democratic party versus the republican party it's overwhelmingly the republican party like like for example just just like pair trade like peter Thiel versus like bill gates right like peter Thiel. I, I, from all I'm aware, is significantly less wealthy than uh, Bill Gates. Yep. And, and I think like this is true intra Democratic Party too, right? It, it, Democrat, the Democratic Party is much more uh, amenable to kind of cultural shifts than Bill Gates. Like, like just look at like how much like Bill Gates really wanted to talk about like basically like the global poverty stuff, right? He he was yeah he he was kind of like a proto EA um, yeah. or in the same direction or like some of the pandemic preparedness stuff. And we can look at the results for themselves. How much, you know, pandemic pre- preparedness stuff did uh, Bill Gates actually do, right? Like next to none, <laughs> yeah. right? Like like in practice, that, that amounted to like next to no impact. In fact, maybe even negative impact on the U.S.'s pandemic policy. Um, which I mean, like, I, I don't, you know, I'm not one of those people who are angry at Bill Gates for trying, but like... Well, it, you know, maybe maybe donate to Republicans next time. You know, <laughs> it's the, the the things that get you power aren't the necessarily the things that you know make you be successful once you have that power. Um, and so, yes, exactly. This is exactly what I mean. Th- this is the way that, like, the way to win 
within like the Democratic Party, and like this is true within the Republican Party elections specifically as well, right? In both parties, the way to win in elections is to be like dumber than you actually are. But like in like the way to win like marginally in like democratic policy is also to be dumber than than you actually are right in terms of the race stuff cert for sure in terms of being anti-market um and this isn't to say that like there aren't some people who can win despite their kind of intelligence and despite the fact that their policy preferences are intelligent right like tyler cowan um ezra klein's been one of the best faith actors he's been more amenable to basically like a, a lot of the Yimby stuff is a great example, right? I, I'm not saying that it's like completely futile. I'm just saying like, just do the pair trade here, right? It's not, it's not that you can't accomplish anything within the democratic party. That's the much stronger position than I actually believe. It's that just like, basically like the impact ratio is just going to be so much higher in the Republican party. Like, like the Republican party is so much more open to like good, right. new and unique ideas. It's um, there's a green field there for sure. And that is to bring two things on the table. One is you can compare Tyler Cowen and Richard Hanania and their imp- relative impact at the moment as a, as part of a broader conversation of how truthful one should be. <laughs> um, hmm. Because I mean, Tyler is a, you know, epic intellectual. He's also much more strassy and much more careful. Um, or at least that's my read as someone who's a, admirer of him. And also, uh, you know, he's been great to me and his friend. Um, and then Richard Hanania is much more truthful, um, almost to the point of, you know, uh, is he seeking controversy sometimes? <laughs> you know, I, like I can, I can, uh, re- rely on Tyler to maybe hold back and, and Richard to maybe lean in like a bit more. I mean, Richard has said this publicly, right? He said this on Twitter that he kind of has like a, a reaction to audience capture. Like, like the, the, the more his audience is like made up of a certain group of people, the more he notices like the, the stupid things that they believe. Right. Yeah. The, um, and then in terms of the Republican thing, I mean, it's interesting because Vivek, um, who's now running for president, I, I just had him on my podcast and I'm going to release it uh, soon. And it's going to blow my audience's mind in a, in meaning they're going to be like, wow, who is this guy? He's really controversial. Vivek is really interesting because he is, you know, certainly an elite. He's been a very successful entrepreneur. He went to Harvard, Yale. He's very smart. Um, he's um, an Indian guy. Um, and he is almost like running. He's trying to like up-level MAGA stuff, basically. <laughs> I mean, he's not right. saying the election was stolen, but he is like going on all their issues. He's pro-life. He's like anti-climate. I mean, he's leaning into culture war issues and taking the, the right-wing side, like to the nth degree. And, and it's interesting to see how he's going to be perceived because Trump did that, but Trump was, was way more of them. And, and of course people would say, oh, Trump's a billionaire or, or, you know, or he's not a billionaire, but like, how is he, you know, speaking to mainstream America? Well, he had their affect. He had their like uh, crassness. He had their, like, he was a man of the people in vibe and style. And it just so happens when you're like a real estate, you know, person, you do actually communicate with um, and work with you know, normal people and you build up a, uh, you know, ability to connect with them. And to your point about Biden, like Biden has, has done that too in his way. And so, but Vivek has not done that, right? Vivek has been on an elite track um, for his entire life. Now he's from Ohio and, and you know, I, I don't know him super well. So maybe I'm underrating something, but he, Vivek comes across as slick. Um, whereas Trump came off as like much more smooth and, you know, where people might resonate with 
Vivek on a policy issue, or they're glad that he's fighting for them. I wonder if there's going to be enough emotional resonance. But last thing I'll say about Vivek is he's just so interesting because he didn't need to do this. Like he could have just been a successful entrepreneur and investor. Like you see Joe Lonsdale, you see Peter Thiel, right? Like, you, you know, these people don't get into politics directly. They just, they get into indirectly, right? They start companies that sell to the government and solve big problems. They, they get their friends in office or, you know, people they think are credible um, in, in, you know, in the case of Peter Thiel and J.D. Vance. Um, and they start like policy orgs in the case of Joe Lonsdale. Vivek could have done that. But Vivek instead decided to be a culture warrior himself. Now he's so wealthy, he doesn't need to like make more money, but it's just interesting to see in the next few years, which path is going to have the most success. And to bring it full circle, like Vivek is optimizing for distribution first. Like he, he's trying to build right. almost like a Tucker Carlson level audience. And then what's he going to do with that? Like, you know, so. I don't think he wants to, like, this is what's interesting right like i don't think vivek like i don't i don't know him personally um but like you can kind of see vivek you as like the andrew yang of 2024 right like someone who's obviously way too smart for his party is way less is way too like nonpartisan for his party um, and this isn't to say that vivek isn't you know like not a real republican or something like that i think he's like republican but he's nowhere near uh, like you said, he's not that, ex- like, he, he he doesn't want to lean into kind of, like, the culture war fights. I think he's much more technocratic than that, uh, just from, like, what he said publicly, right, and on podcasts and stuff like that. Um, no, I, I think I, th- I think Vivek is upping his tone. So he, I mean, one of his main points, so I, I think there's some ways in which he overlaps with Andrew Yang, both, uh, you know, very, very smart, um, both, I, I think it's actually key that they're Asian, <laughs> you know, they're not white, not <laughs> yeah. black. Um that was Wes Yang's like uh, you know reason why Andrew Yang could win because <laughs> he could be a unifier. Um, right. I, I think there's some, and they're both entrepreneurs and you know respected by by entrepreneurs. I, I think there is a um, key difference. I think Andrew Yang did have more of a man of the people vibe, and Andrew Yang, That's true. to your point, was was non nonpartisan. I mean Vivek is you know he's trying to like end affirmative action. He's trying you know end the climate religion. Like Vivek is becoming very aggressive in his tone on certain issues that are even to the right of other, um, you know, right wing um, people. Now he's not going to say the election was stolen. He's not going to say, you know, like ban all immigration. Like he's too smart for certain dumb issues, but where, where the minwit meme like makes sense, (laughs) you know, and and maybe it's on affirmative action. Maybe it's on some other things like Vivek is going all in. So um, in some ways that seems like a, a key difference. Right, like I don't think, you know, like practically, if if this isn't done by law, because there's a chance that, or sorry, this will, if it's not done by like Supreme Court ruling, because I think there's a non-zero chance that it's done by the Supreme Court ruling. But I think like there's 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 just so much energy. Whoever is elected the next candidate, even Trump, as as kind of like, you know, incompetent as I think that Trump is, I think that kind of like. Here's the funny thing, right? Like the Republicans talk about you know like the deep state but like the republican version of the deep state whatever that is is actually like i think kind of a hero in this circumstance that there are just in, enough like there's a critical mass of think tankers and staffers on the republican side that like republican or that affirmative action is going to get severely curtailed like it, it's not like literally inevitable 
but you know it's like very you know i would put it very high in the probability distribution that um so, so yeah like vivek is kind of like it's interesting because i think he has i think he like first of all i think he's like red garvin and he in, and he's red burnham almost certainly yep. right um i think he's actually like referenced burnham in like some uh podcast interview although i might be misremembering that uh yeah like he, yeah, he knows you know he knows it's not really a democracy um so so like why are you running for president if you know it's not really a democracy because there are people in think tanks because there are people um policy staffers congressmen uh senators who who will notice me because i'm running for president and i'm you know actually um having some some rise in polling uh i I think like that's the answer maybe i'm um projecting a little too much once again i don't know vivek personally but like that's my best guess well the the, the like i don't think he's actually trying to win win the presidency sorry go on well yeah it's interesting because andrew yang it's like okay you run for president and then you know you lose and then you're a media entrepreneur or you know a media person and that's a pretty nice life but i mean you know, Andrew Yang was an accomplished entrepreneur in his own right, but Vivek was on another level um, of accomplishment. And so, like, you know, Joe Lonsdale or Peter Thiel, who I put in, you know, like Vivek is very smart and accomplished. I, I put in maybe a similar camp if, if Vivek kept on the tech path for another two decades. Like, they don't want to be media people. So meaning, like, if Vivek loses, like, having Andrew Yang's career is, is probably not what he wants. He, and so I think he thinks he's going to, well, I think he thinks he wants to win. Um, and I think he thinks he's maybe going to win at some point in the future. Um, you know, not now, but maybe, you know, eight years from now, 12 years from now. I, I, I don't know. Um, but I, I think he's going for it. And um, to your point, I mean, it's an example of a really brilliant person saying, hey, I'm just going to, like, take a chance at reforming, um, reforming this party. And um, I mean, I, I tend to sympathize with with the critique that even if you it's kind of a horseshoe theory of like why no one should want Trump in office. Because if, if, if you hate him, you certainly don't, if you hate what he stands for, you certainly don't want an office. And if you actually like are sympathetic with what he stands for, well, it seems like if there's any repeat of 2016, 2020, you're, you're just going to like lose on the, all the issues that you care about. And so, you know, to the extent that there's like some grand unification in, you know, not wanting Trump to, to win, um, then, you know, the more smart people who challenge him, the, the, the better. I, I think like, I think a bet on Trump is like, a, or like, this is not originally my argument. I'm not sure if the people who made this argument to me would want me to give their names. But like, yeah, some pretty, like some pretty like new right people um, basically said like a bet on Trump is, you know, basically a bet on like the new right deep state, right? It's basically a bet that, you know, like, uh, Trump knows who his friends are, that those people are going to be the people who actually care about political power. Um, Where were they in 2016 or 2018? Or... Yeah, yeah. Like, like this whole like, movement escalated after that. Like, like, I don't actually believe this, right? I think the best predictor of future action is past action. But like, you know, the, the probability of the, the, I call this, you know, like the, the this time we'll get it argument i don't think it's like zero i think it's low but i don't think it's zero but at least you know that that's the that's the consideration that those people would um would make at least yeah 
It is interesting. I mean, to to support Trump, you have to be like in the most charitable view, like there's such a um, sacrifice in terms of status, in terms of being seen in good standing with employee. Like, have you ever read the flight uh, 93 election by Michael Anton? I have a long time ago. It was basically the punchline that like California is dying and like, this is all the marbles. Like if, if Republicans don't win, it's just so over as they say. Right, right. The, the idea is that with, yeah, basically with um, the left wing kind of racial um, scapegoating, that they are basically planning to take, you know, and, and I think like this is actually like a pretty, like I was skeptical of the take then, but I think it's actually kind of aged better. Um, but the, the idea that, you know, like if they don't stop Trump, then not the, uh, many out previously neutral elements of government, of private life, of, um, I mean, certainly academia at this point, right? That that part, I think, is undeniable. Will be, recon- will be weaponized permanently against conservatives. Um, I think life for conservatives has gotten better from 2020 to 2023 than it has been from 2016 to 2020. Now, not in all areas, like what they're trying to do in K-12 or with the China, like, you know, the, the, the left had a ton of soft power um, and like hidden hard power. And now they're losing a lot of soft power and they have a, you know, a more hard power, but it's constrained. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, they've been losing a lot of the, the cultural um, sort of momentum that certain, certain movements had. And the lack of a boogeyman on the right has given, has allowed the more moderate left people to have more power, hence like Bidenism. Um, so, I mean, that's not me. Yeah. Yeah. Like my counter argument to like the Michael Anton thing is that like Trump won and it still happened. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like it it happened even more like you can't do counterfactuals, but like, yeah. 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 Like, like, like there, there was a kind of, there was a flight nine or like there, there was a, like a, like a flight, but like, you know, Trump did not successfully storm the cockpit. It didn't work. It was not a solution. Yeah, that, that would be, I, I still think that's the kind of best counter argument, but that was not like the argument back then, right? right? You know, or like some people for sure believe that, I don't know, but most people were saying, you know, like this wouldn't actually happen. Like, like that was the line of attack on Anton. And I think in hindsight, like it, it's funny, like I think in hindsight, you know, like Trump was both much more incompetent than we expected. Um, and Anton was like more right than we expected on at least on the half that was like you know this is going to happen not not necessarily yeah. that trump would uh trump would succeed in stopping it but but you know like to to his credit he 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 like says that right that that's yeah. like a crucial point of the of of the essay is like we don't know if it would work um yeah. and it didn't <laughs> I, yeah I, i'm intrigued by your, your your question that you've been asking which is like how do you get really talented people into government um how do yes. you redirect a lot of talent um you know uh to to serve and I, you know, you have to make it high status for them to, for it to, to. Right. No, 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 not, not, not high status, not, not high status, high, um, high, like work environment. Like, like he, here's the thing, like, like I have this quote, um, that I have not, uh, I've, I've said on Twitter a few times, but I don't think I've, I've said in like podcast world, which is like the, the free market selects against the free market. Hmm. Um, because when you have a free market, uh, it creates just like such awesome talent 
uh, or such awesome opportunities for talent that like I, I know you know like the the most brilliant I was I, I had a math Olympiad computer science Olympiad background like all the most brilliant people are you know working in tech now right they're they're working technical jobs yep. they're not involved in politics they're not gaining any sort of power or connection or network they're they're working on important technical problems you know many of them you know there's a there's an exceptional number of them at OpenAI specifically <laughs> you know yeah. um, on the technical teams um, and in fact you you can even argue that they've contributed a lot more to society by doing so um, but it means that those are exactly the people who are not vying for power yep um, like and of course, you know, in order to keep this prosperous system that allows them to work so happily running, you have to not, you know, like I'm sure there were a lot of brilliant nuclear engineers that upon, upon you know, like the, the, the construction of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission were condemned to like basically being irrelevant or basically working in like purely theoretical physics and never applying it, right? Like... That is a possible path for machine learning today, right? And so, like, like me specifically, like, I've had to make this decision, right? Like, do I want to make money? Do I want to, um, or, or do I want, like, like this specific fact, like, like the fact that I just talked about, about the free market selecting against the free market is, like, specifically the reason why I'm at least, like, mostly convinced that I do want to, uh, that I do want to do something involving policy in the future. Well, I'll sort of state it a bit, you know, crudely or, or simplified, which is if you have two options and one of them is work at open AI, work at big tech, whatever, like, you know, um, or, and the other one is kind of work, you know, to use your words, like against the regime, like one option gives you, you know, can help make you rich and is like seen as you know more noble or something by a number of you know college grads <laughs> um which a lot of people care about um and and um and kind of more people in elite society the other path has probably less economic upside or certainly less economic upside and it's depending on which circles they're in certainly um you know perhaps less approval from like a certain mainstream elite person but what it does have is um, it's, you know, a certain like um, a certain integrity, intellectual integrity to it, to the extent that they are truth seeking. Um, and so I, th I think open AI engineers are really truth seeking, though. I don't think that's an advantage. But they're selectively truth seeking, right? Sure. No, like they can be honest with their political beliefs a lot of the time, too. Like, I don't know, like maybe if they were like very, very based, you know, <laughs> they wouldn't. Yeah, I, like I, most of them have like normie, apolitical, you know, like a lot of them support Andrew Yang. Yeah. Um, a lot of them support, you know, like Nikki Haley or whatever, right? Like Shamas supports totally. Nikki Haley, right? Like a lot of them are kind of like apolitical totally. or like centrists I, or like center libertarians. I, I guess what I'm saying is that in order to get people on this path, because it's not going to be as economically competitive, you have to compete on some other axis. And I, I think it like, let's just say, for example, that... Elon Musk said, hey, you know, I, Elon Musk said that we need a balanced, you know, government. I tweeted about that. That's why I said you should vote Republican um, in the last election. And I, I, Elon, acknowledge that the Republican Party is totally broken. Hey, Democrats agree with that, too. And we need to fix it. 
And so I am Elon, I'm going to have like a teal fellowship for policy. Um, and it's going to be the Elon fellowship and it's going to be 20 people are going to get selected. 2000 are going to apply and, you know, I'll pay you a decent salary. It's not open AI, you know, level salary and equity, but you know, you'll, you'll, you'll be fine. Um, and it'll be a two year thing, a three year thing. And then I'm going to help you start a company or something. A program like that would get people flooding in droves because they're not sacrificing their like career upside and thus like long-term status upside. In fact, maybe they're accelerating it. Um, and so they get to, and, and you would get people applying who aren't even truth seeking. Like they're actually just like career, um, you know, uh, like climbing and maybe they're so competent um, that you actually want them there. Um, and so I feel like that's the kind of direction um, that you, you know, you need to move, one needs to move in if you want to like shape where people go. And I, I think the, the same thing applies in higher ed too. I know you wanted to chat about that, which is like, you can have something like UATX, which I, I know you are, uh, you know, went to, and I, I really admire, uh, or, you know, you attended some summer class or something. And I, I really admire um, in terms of, you know, I, I'm friends with, with Joe and Barry and, and, and these people, but like, I think, you know, you're not going to get people who are, you know, avoiding Harvard or Stanford and picking UATX over them because it's sacrificing career upside and the best people aren't going to do that um, or don't want to do that. There would be some who are so, you know, intellectually pure that they're willing to sacrifice some upside. And, and, you know, UATX, I talked to Joe about this. He said, he's going to, he's going to, um, you know, make it such that they're not sacrificing by getting companies like Tesla and SpaceX to, you know, guarantee jobs and stuff like that. So you can, you can measure with that, but like an organization that has a much bigger chance of competing with Harvard and Stanford is the Teal Fellowship because right. that is more prestige. One, because it borrows Teal's name and it's just extremely selective and they advertise how selective they are in the same way that Harvard does. I, um, and then two, um, because they have um, a track record, right? Like the people who've gone through are, are incredible. Um, now, if Elon tomorrow also similarly said, hey, we're starting the Elon, um, you know, degree and it's it's competing with harvard and stanford we have two thousand people and we um you know we have signed up with all these companies that have promised to hire from here i i think he too could compete but you need to borrow some level of prestige um either from individuals or from corporations um and use that to create a very selective program that gets the best people um and it most importantly excludes everybody else um so that People are making the Pareto optimal, you know, decision, non-ideological when they're choosing between Harvard and, and whatever competitor. And, and until you're creating something that is just long-term better for them on a on the you know career and status uh, prestige access access access, you're you're not going to compete for the for the most um, for the most prestigious um, sort of you know uh, for the students that are chasing the most prestige, i.e. the the most um, status seeking and, and, and often most competent and, and intelligent. Right. Yeah. It has to be kind of philotropic that, that that's how the kind of, uh, incentive problem gets squared. Yeah. I, I think that makes sense. It, is, it doesn't have that... to be philanthropic. Like Elon could be doing it as a for-profit venture. Like he could charge $40,000. Like he could charge the same price. It just, it has to be extremely selective and has to be associated with some level of prestige, right? Like we have university competitors, UATX, Minerva, 
which I, I think Minerva is is trying to do this to some degree. They you know, benchmark funded them. They they have some Silicon Valley pedigree. You know, the, there's the, the university. Is in, that a Austin Allard's thing? No, he's doing Lambda. Um, okay. Which which is interesting. I mean, but he's 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 not going after the most brilliant students. He's going after people who are trying to learn how to code. Yeah, like the marginal software engineer, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, but but he did a good job of borrowing prestige in order to become the definitive boot camp. Um, but I mean, I think we're doing such a bad job in general. If we care about getting the top students, or even like directionally the top students out of Harvard or Stanford over the next ten years, like it doesn't seem like we're making any real progress to doing that. And you ask Silicon Valley, like, what, what are they doing about that? They're like, well. We think the education model is broken, so we're just going to wait until the next innovation, you know, happens um, in the next like platform shift or something, because we don't want to do all the dirty work of creating a new university. And th- this is why actually, like Teal looked into this. He looked into, you know, creating a university, like a real university that offered degrees and that you know, um, like competed head to head. And he he said it, it would just become a copy. It would just it's, it's just too much. Whatever he didn't want to compete in the same way. And I, I think that's that's a uh, a shame because Teal Fellowship has had a tremendous impact for the people that went through it. It's had a tremendous impact in terms of shifting the conversation. Like when I was in college in 2010, 2008, like saying that college was um, sort of like a joke or a cartel or all these things was pretty controversial. Like Teal Fellowship was extremely controversial. And now it's like fact. It, it, it's like, you know, even people like, who previously would have thought it was a joke or, 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 you know, beyond the pale now agree with it. And, and yet there's like zero change. And so um, he's definitely shifted the conversation, but I think we need people to really like understand how um, these institutions are competed with. And it's not just through like a better product via like meaning a better education um, or a better uh, network necessarily, it's it's by the the whole the whole package, and that whole package includes a more prestigious um, option. Right, I think like a big problem here, honestly, like with like universities specifically, is that like if you're if you're trying to basically convince people to like locate their resources inefficiently, right you either have to do two things, right? You have to either pay them the, the requisite amount, right? So that they're not actually, um, that, that they're being compensated for allocating their resources and then it becomes actually optimal. Or, you know, you have to convince them to dislike the market for some reason. Or, you know, not actually to dislike it, but say like, okay, here, I'm going to do this instead. And like, like I am still, you know, I am still pro-market in almost all areas, it's just that you need some people, you know, you need some people to exit the market or at least not for that not to be the main thing that they're working on in order to actually defend it in the first place, right? Like, like, you know, we could have taken, you know, like even just like 20% of the top nuclear engineering talent and if we could have taken them and gotten them to basically work in DC and make sure that they stop banning nuclear technologies, then we would have a not we would have a much more thriving nuclear engineering sector, um, so like yeah, this is the problem. You know, like the free market does not select for the free market existing. Um, let, let me give an interesting. And like example. the biggest problem is 
that like in in the policy space right because of the selection effect left-wingers have an intrinsic advantage like people who hate markets just have an intrinsic advantage because you hate markets where are you gonna go work that's where we're going there was a famous conversation that happened with a very ambitious um very uh, smart person and someone high up in effective altruism where he said hey i'm really interested in effective altruism how can i have the biggest impact on effective altruism and the person high up might have been will mcgaska i don't know who it was um said get rich and come back and give some money and make a big impact that way. And that person very famously was Sam Bankman fried <laughs> and he, he followed the formula and it worked short of, you know, massive unparalleled global fraud, but he transformed the, the EA community for, for a few years and, and not the community, but their prospects of making a difference. And so, um, you know, if you're thinking about, hey, how do you maximize the impact over the next 20 years or, you know, dec- you know, period of time that you you want to optimize your, your impact, you, you're you probably asking yourself the question, yeah, like, do I go into policy or do I get rich first? I'd be successful first. And it seems that, unfortunately, the, w- the way the world works is like once you're really successful, once you have a successful startup or you're a successful investor or whatever it is that you can do, you not only have money that can then, you know, direct other people's times and start organization and stuff like that. But you also have a level of credibility and, and prestige um, that can even further shape where, you know, labor and capital um, goes. And so now I don't know how, how you think about it for, for, for yourself, but that's uh, that's one framework of, of, of thinking about it. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um... The, the counterpoint is like Balaji has this quote right there there are like they're like personal billionaires and then there are like I, I forget what it was like like manager billionaires or something like that right like the, like the, the idea is like the, the city of San Francisco has like billions of dollars um, being managed obviously states those states have more than billion dollars being managed and that is all being directed and, and a lot of it is just under the discretion of, of, of like whoever is the executive right like just what can be done with executive orders, right? Obviously becoming president is quite difficult. Um, but you have all these positions which are, you know, in effect billionaires, people who, who yeah. control like billions yeah. of dollars and in fact maybe have even more discretion uh, or at least are not punished in the same way that you would be punished, for example, for selling stock, you know, the stock price would drop, um, uh, in spending that money. Um, so like this is true in some cases I'm, I'm sure of that right it might have been true you know if sam bankman fried was running um you know an actual uh profitable company that might have been the case that you would have done more by doing that instead of uh instead of by you know influencing some kind of policy um i think it's definitely true if you want to Im- influence the democratic party uh because of once again how yeah. you know, just anti-intelligence they are um both in terms of like also denying that like like i think like this is the reason right like i think you know like there is an actual kind of virtue ethics here where like the lack of valuing intelligence philosophically leads to like lack of valuing intelligence practically yep um yeah let let me Um, counter to to what i just said which is every movement and i i do believe this every you know ea needed will mcgaskill and it needed, and I might be pronouncing Will's name wrong, but it needed a Will and it needed a 
Dustin Moskovitz and Sam Bankman-Fried. Like you, you need the actual capital and you need kind of moral or intellectual capital. And, and Will right, right. was a idea entrepreneur um, and he was an uh, amazing aggregator of, of talent and, and, and capital. And Will could only do that by having spent a you know, decade or, or more, you know, really immersed in ideas and also um, really immersed in kind of, you know, local community organizing, so to speak, or some of this political right. work even. So um, Will had a, you know, he was very successful in terms of his like movement impact and more so than he would have been if he had tried to be an entrepreneur because it's so hard to be an SBF or, uh, or Dustin Moskowitz. There's a lot of luck involved. At the same time, you know, it's hard to be a, a, a Will too. But if, 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 if people have that kind of, you know, unique prowess of ideas, and I remember having a conversation with Balaji as he was thinking about his, his next thing because Balaji is both an idea entrepreneur and an actual entrepreneur. But I think one thing he said to me, which I don't, I don't think reveals anything in confidence, is, you know, I'm a competent entrepreneur. I, Balaji, I've, I've helped start a council which sold for $300 million. I was CTO of Coinbase. But there are lo lots of competent entrepreneurs out there. And I, Balaji, you know, I'm not Elon Musk. Um, but in terms of idea entrepreneurship within technology, it's actually not that many. Um, and so... Yes. It is interesting. I mean, Balaji moved to Singapore. Well, I'll take that out. I guess, sorry. Balaji, you know. Wait, I think you said that publicly. <laughs> okay, you said so, that on like the Eric Weinstein podcast. Okay, so, so maybe we could leave it in that. But Balaji left the country, which I say that to say that he hasn't seen most people in person since COVID. And yet he's become way more influential than he has prior. And that's just, that's based on ideas. That's based on, you know, publishing the network state. That's based on, um, you know, wading into the, the, the discourse. Um, and so if you're good at ideas, you know, there's a lot of power in that. So I, I don't mean to, um, to undermine that. And, but one has to go all in and one has to, you know, put their, put their, put their time in. Now, when you talk about doing policy stuff, yeah, you just have to find the right medium that, that. And, and maybe it is podcasting and, 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 and newsletter plus like some version of community organizing or movement building. But, you know, those are a, a couple examples of people who've, who've done that well, which, which put, and Darkash is in the same position, right? Like he's also brilliant. He came on your podcast for, for podcast listeners. They should check that out. Um, and he can start a company or he can keep pursuing his intellectual work, which like yours seems to be really resonating and seems to be pretty differentiated and pretty novel I mean, you guys are both in your early 20s and some of the best idea entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley already, which just shows the the, uh, the opportunity. Right. That, that's interesting because I think like that, that phrase is really good because, uh, yeah, I was actually wait, like, okay, maybe I shouldn't. I won't mention who I was was, was talking to, but I was talking to... Um, someone and I basically said like I consider myself to be like a very poor writer uh, and like not like amazing of a podcaster either um in in terms of like charisma and in terms of like really creating a kind of feeling of like relatability of interest I think I just like have found I've kind of like speculated I've kind of like bet on ideas that have become much bigger right like mm -hmm. 
And that's been that's been the lane of like, okay, if you come to, you know, if you're listening to the From the New World podcast, if you're subscribed to the newsletter, you will, you know, you won't get like the most compelling paragraph about a new idea that that will matter a lot to you in like five years, right? Or at least will matter a lot to a lot of people in five years. But you will get that idea, right? You you will get you will get that idea in some form. And I think that's like that that is the draw. I think for a lot of people, including people who have talked to you about it. Um, right. I mean, just to spend a, another minute on that. I mean, if you look at Richard Hanania's work, like what is he most known for? Or what is his great intellectual contributions? From my perspective, it's, it's a few, and you know, he's got books and stuff, so I don't mean to undermine them, but it's a few blog posts. It's, you know, wokeness is civil rights law. It's um, the, uh, the, you know, the liberals, conservative analysis it's, Red liberals read conservative watch TV. Yeah, yeah the classic, the classics. Yeah, it's some of the stuff yeah. on 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 gender in terms of free speech. Um, you know, uh, like and how gender inf- impacts organizations. I'm being you know a little a little vague, but people should, could go read it. Um, I think, um, and then also, yeah, I think the the, the headline on that was something like uh, the free marketplace of ideas favors women's tears. Or something. Yes, um, and then also like, and and then you know, separate from that is just kind of his his sense of humor on Twitter, which. Um, you know, or his antics on, on Twitter, as some might say. Um, and, you know, I, I think one question I have for you is like, are you also someone who's going to write kind of seminal, like, you know, um, blog posts that that will explain a concept that people didn't know how to understand? I mean, I think you were the only one on the wokeness and AI front, for, for example, you know, like this woman, Renee, forget her last name, Duresta, has built a whole career on kind of like riding the, you know, misinformation wave, you know, she's from the other side, of course, um, on, on the left via the social media stuff. But to the extent that AI and um, censorship is going to become a major issue, it's going to require someone really technical to figure that out, who also understands some of the politics stuff. So that, I mean, that's an interesting angle. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting just to think about, we don't spend too much time on it, but if you, um, you know, really take the public intellectual path just like what is the way to break out in a way that, you know, Richard and, and, and a couple of these others have not, not a ton, you know? Yeah. I, I think like, I don't know that, that that's been like a different, that's been an interesting thing for me. Um, because, you know, I really am kind of a true believer in elite theory Um or public choice, you know, like, like, this is a point that I made, made a lot, right? It's, it's pretty similar. It's almost the same thing, but like, yeah, um, a real believer in elite theory, a real believer that it matters kind of who, like, like you, you found out about me by listening to this podcast, right? Like, and, and like, I think there are many such cases where um, they're, they're like, once again, like to go back to the beginning, I do think there are trade-offs. I think there are pretty strong trade-offs um, between public and, and private appeal or like public and elite appeal. Right. I think that, you know, if I had basically like a clickbait thumbnail and headline on every single one of my episodes, right, like this was something that I actually discussed with a different podcaster. He suggested, you know, like putting in clips of like news articles or whatever. Right. Um, And like, I think like from a pure kind of growth perspective, like that's that makes sense. That's true. Right. But. And it would make sense, you know, not to do like four hour podcasts. Hmm. But on the other hand, I think that it's actually 
crucial that you have some of these signals that basically say like actually you know this is not a normal this is not a normal podcast yeah right like i think that 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 kind of like counter signaling actually really matters um may like i think it kind of matters or i think it matters a lot that like the from the new world podcast does not like rarely touches on kind of like first order um culture war issues and touches and like preferentially touches on like second order um uh cultural issues cultural war issues right like a good example of like the second order cultural issue is like richard hanania's writing on like affirmative action right like like not not just saying you know like oh they're going after your kids or whatever right but saying like okay maybe you know like and this doesn't even like necessarily mean you have like underlying policy disagreement right like it's like here is here is why you know affirmative action is so influential in each of these companies it is due to these laws in specific you should or you should repeal these laws in specific right like i think that 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 that's like both the proper context in terms of like what i actually want to do right like in terms of what i actually care about and want to focus on but it's also like the proper context for for kind of like recruiting or like yeah, we can go with recruiting, right? Like, like attracting, that's a better word, Attra- attracting a kind of very interested audience who is just much more likely to actually do things in the future. Yeah, it is inter- it's interesting. I think there are trade-offs to everything. Um, and I think that that path that you just outlined, um, it's kind of like, you know, the in different ways, but like the Curtis path, right? Like he is, um, you know, sort of undecipherable to... Uh, to a normie audience and that attracts a certain level of diehard um, followership. And he's, you know, he's not the person named, but his ideas of influence, you know, someone like a Vivek or someone like a Teal, even if, or even Elon, even indirectly. And that is impact and that is power. Um, at the same time, um, there, you know, there's, a, there's always a question of, did this person succeed um, in because of their, um, you know, the decisions they made or, or in spite of certain decisions they made? And, you know, um, someone like Balaji maybe is, um, is a bit of both in that, you know, like, um, he's both an idea entrepreneur and kind of like an actual entrepreneur slash like community organizer, or like he's able to. Yeah. He, he was elite much more before he was like publicly well-known. Yes. And, um, I guess what I'm saying is it's easy. It's a potential cope, this idea that, you know, I can't have my ideas, my ideas spread widely because it would sacrifice some, you know, some of the main points of why I even do this. Because like we were talking about with All In before, like some things are able to be mainstream and also appeal to elites. Now, you know, it's certainly watered down. It's certainly, um, although in their, their case, I actually don't think they're they're watering down, but it's watered down relative to like a purist or, or, some, or, you know, someone who spends all their time thinking about certain things. Um, and, you know, some people like, because they don't want to be seen with the normies, you know, sort of snuff their, their, you know, thumb their nose at it, but it certainly has a bigger impact. I mean, I, I think you need everything, but I, as I'm saying, yeah, I, I wouldn't rule out having a, a more excess. Like, I don't think Richard Hanania has sacrificed a ton by, you know, growing his audience, you know, 10x in the past, you know, couple years. And, 
you know, if, if Richard Anania grows his audience 10x again the next year, like, I don't think now he might be audience captured to your point earlier in, in kind of a different kind of way. And he starts to, instead of cater to his audience, like, you know, uh, hate his audience. Um, but I just wouldn't rule it out is, is, is what I'm saying. I, I think there could be successful models in, in, in both, you know, deliberately niche ways and also in ways that, um, you know, transcend that need. Yeah, I think the trade-off is kind of a lot more simple than, like, this might have been my fault that, that, like, I was miscommunicating it, right? But, like, the practical trade-off is, like, you know, I can go to the DC meetup or I can write another article, right? And maybe the timescales on that aren't quite right. Yep. But it's, like, literally, like, a time trade-off in terms of elite versus public influence. Yeah. Right? Like... Like, like they're like literally, you know, like the, the same, the same time slot yeah. or like, so like I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, like, do you, do you think that like, where, where do you think the most value is generated? Right. I know you talked about earlier already that like, it's kind of saturation dependent, right? We have a lot of idea entrepreneurs or like there are idea entrepreneurs, there are actual entrepreneurs. Like to me, like this, this is actually something like, like, I think about this a lot, actually, in terms of just, like, speculating on the kind of, like, talent metagame, yeah. right? Like, something that pushed me, like, people don't know, people in my audience don't know this, right? I was, like, really interested in machine learning in, like, 2018, 2019, right? And so was, like, the rest of the entire, you know, like, computer science Olympiad scene. And, and like, I just saw so many people, especially, like, so many people who I, like, personally respect, um and knew already were like knew personally were like just just extraordinary people going to machine learning i'm like man do i want to really want to be like the n n plus one uh machine learning engineer like like how how impactful how much will that actually matter as opposed to like doing literally anything else yeah right um it's and you know like i've kind of returned to that indirectly over <laughs> over the the past year or so but i think that philosophy still kind of applies right yes now like like there are a lot of like like applying that to to here there i think there are a lot of like maybe this is a controversial take but i think like the current environment of public intellectuals is very good like there are a lot of very good public intellectuals like like bology um like richard um like Scott Alexander um, and, and like Curtis, like of, of all kinds of differing ideologies. And like, the, the, I, in my experience, the, the, the quality of like a, a well-known public intellectual is like higher than the quality of like a DC lobbyist. And I'll put in Ezra Klein and Noah Smith just to get some more diversity. Uh, sure. Yeah. Diversity. But the, um, I'd endorse that. <laughs> the, Here's the way I would look at it. I mean, there's a few different dimensions of the of the question. Because in some ways, yeah, there are a lot of great entrepreneurs. There are a lot of great idea entrepreneurs. And yet at the same time, there's, you know, there's a shortage. Like there's only one Elon Musk or, you know, there's only like a few, right, people on that level. And there's only a few, you know, Sir Tyler Cowens or Richard Hananias. Um, like, and so at the top level, you know, you could always have more. Um, so what question I'd ask. That's fair. There are a few questions. I mean, one is like, wherever there's more interest, there's just going to be more like desire to put in the work to get really great. I, I think what, what you are in and, and many 
really talented people are in are they're like, you know, they have the struggle of having choice. It's not obvious to them what they should do because you, if you said, Hey, I'm going to focus on making as much money as possible. And you applied your brain to that. You'd probably be pretty successful. You might be extremely successful. And similarly, if you said, Hey, I am going to apply myself a hundred percent to idea innovation or, you know, public intellectual life, you know, you yourself could, could become a Richard within a few years, right? Like Richard came out of nowhere, like Richard before COVID was not on anyone's radar, right? Like Richard, Richard really, um, you know, rose up pretty fast relative to someone like a Tyler Cowen or something. Um, and so, um, you're cursed by that, um, by the, by optionality. But the, the problem there is if you don't go all in on one, you might not have success in either, right? Because they require right. intense focus. Now, so if you assumed, so interest matters because it's going to determine how hard you work. But if you assumed for intensive purposes, interest was equal and you just said, hey, let's say there's two universes, two worlds. One is which I spend the next five years. And even after five years, you'd you know, be in your late 20s or whatever, like you'd still have plenty of time. But next five years, either focused on um, entrepreneurship or, you know, getting wealthy or on idea work. And you just kind of like sketched out what that could look like. And, you know, you know, your skills and opportunities better, better than I do. And if, if either of them looks like you can make more progress, you, you can add the other, like, let's say, let's say, for example, you, um, in the next five years, had the level of success that Richard has today. You're seen as like one of the great public intellectual, or, or maybe biology has, but like, you know, putting aside his entrepreneurial accomplishments or something, you're, you're seen as like a leading voice on issues that, that, that matter. Um, and you, ha you have an audience and you have distribution and you have respect and brilliant people follow you. Well, at that point you can do a number of things. Certainly you could, you know, start a media organization or have a successful career via media. But, but just as I was saying earlier in this conversation, like distribution is a wedge into other things. Like if you're also technical and you can right. recruit, recruit technical people, um, well, um, you know, then you can co-found something or invest in like, there's a lot of people who use media to become investors and they, they, you do use your distribution, it, you know, ruin is an example, right? Like, um, someone who built an audience on Twitter and, um, has leveraged that to get some influence such that some people, and I don't know his exact situation, but he's just, yeah. just and, and for the audience, uh, you might, you might not know who rune is. Uh, we did an episode with him, the fourth episode in this entire podcast. And, uh, that will be, that will be linked as well, but sorry, keep going. Sure. So uh, I, I think, and I would say the same thing to our cash. It's like, where can you make the, the kind of quickest traction? Like what, what is, what is the quickest path to, and, and for, let's say I'm talking to Darkash, it's like, Hey, podcast is, you know, taking off. Like, what if you went all in on the pod? Like how far could you go with, with the podcast? And then it's like, okay, what are adjacent things you could do from there? It's like, I mean, Tyler Cowen, if, if Tyler was more um, kind of, you know, if he was younger in his career and more ambitious, he could start, or more commercially ambitious, he could start a fund as well. Um, he could start, um, meaning like he could be a big time investor. He has the deep respect of of the Valley and people who matter. Um, he could certainly, like he's, I mean, here he does it with his grants. He's a proven talent um, attractor and selector. You know, VCs do get rich if they're successful and, and he could be a very successful right. um, VC. He's just, because of his ideas, um, he's just choosing not to. 
Um, and so I, I think it's really like the combination of where are you most interested and where do you think you can make the most traction? And if, if you're, and the thing with you is you already have some momentum in the idea space. So if you're like, Hey, I could really like go all out on this for the next few years. Um, and, and really make some traction. Whereas if you evaluate the get wealthy path and it's like, I don't really see a path or, or it's not obvious. Like I'd have to, you know, scrounge for a while. Um, you know, that said, you, I, I could have said the same thing to, S, let's say SBF, you know, before he started FTX or whatever, had a blog and that blog was doing pretty well. <laughs> I, I, you know, I could have been saying, Hey, why don't you like take this blog forward? And he, you know, kind of clinically identified, uh, you know, a few opportunities to make money, like misallocations, uh, you know, or just like arbitrage opportunities. And now if, if we had given, if SBF had been given that advice in 2004 or, or some other time period, like maybe we would never be talking about SBF because he would have tried some, you know, other internet thing in which he had no strategic advantage and it wasn't a way to get $30 billion in three years because there, before crypto, there, there was no way. So timing really matters too, in terms of like, right. what is the, what, is, what really is the arbitrage? opportunity. And so, I mean, the, 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 the comforting, but also, you know, somewhat challenging, um, you know, TLDR on this is like, it seems like you could be successful in either path. Um, and it, it seems like either path could lead to the other. And so it's really just a combination of like your assessment of your, your skills in terms of where you think you could have the highest leverage, where you're most distinct. Um, and that that's on a more granular level because on, on I haven't worked with you, but you know, like on the surface, you, you you seem like you could do both. So your assessment of your own interests, your own talents, your own interests, and then your know, the assessment of the of the market opportunities um, and timing um, in correspondence with those. Right. How do you react to that? Um, I think I just believe in base rates too much, right? Like. Like, like, here's the case for it, right? Like, so, yeah, technical, technical development kind of, or like, yeah, I kind of separate that off a little bit, right? Basically, like, um, frontier tech research, some other kind of entrepreneurship, um, uh, media, or kind of like insider politics, um, like, like, what is the what is the correct ratio of allocation of like top level talent between those, yep. right? And to me, just kind of like at the population level, um, there is a lot of tech, or there, there's a lot of allocation into technical development and entrepreneurship, um, and yeah, like, like once again, going back to the quote, right? Like the potential. It's, it's kind of strange as well. Like, like it's uh, the things that you would do on the policy side. Maybe this is also another thing that makes it kind of like easier to motivate left-wing people, right? If you think that government is intrinsically or like on average, right? If you think that government is on average bad, then you, you, then you know that you're playing a defensive game, right? Like my goal with like the future, you know, like machine learning policy think tank is like, if if literally nothing happens, right? I, I would we would be like celebrating. If like no AI regulation happens, 
in the next five years. We, we, we will, like, be partying. We will be, you know, we'll be like, this is extraordinary, extraordinarily successful. We have accomplished everything we wanted to do. <laughs> right? Yeah. And in terms of, like, in terms of motivation, I have to admit that, like, that is, you know, it's a difficult motivator. I, I've been going through this right now. I've been looking for people uh, to recruit. And it's, you know, especially if you're someone who has the ability to kind of um, either do frontier level research or to do or to be an entrepreneur, right? Like, it's, 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 not, it's not too appealing, right? And I don't think it's necessarily, like, it's less a status thing than, like, it, it is just intrinsically not appealing, yeah. right? Like, like um yeah so so the, the question is right like hmm. or sorry to, to finish up on the, that last point that this just makes it to me at least this just makes my assessment of like talent allocation that the base rate is just of like people who could do both is just like significantly misallocated towards the kind of like making money uh, making money side um yeah, like like if if only you know like there there there's the case that you know you want like more corruption and more basically like bribery in government because it like allows this to flow more efficiently. Um, I I'm not sure like the normal you know like the normal version of corruption would be actually successful in incentivizing that right, but like for example like prediction markets is one way that like maybe this becomes better. Um, yeah, I think that like in the long run, I really want to find some way of kind of optimizing the kind of meta level allocation of talent between these two areas. Um, but yeah, I just don't like, like on the individual level, I think like the base rates just make it much more likely that doing something in kind of entrepreneurship or tech is oversaturated and yeah, just looking at, I don't know, because, like, even even before I w- had any interest in politics, I was thinking, you know, like, I, I'd much rather be a kind of CTO than a kind of CEO, right? I'd much rather be someone who works on the base level technology. But at the same time, yeah, at, at the same time, I am fairly, hmm. yeah, like, like the thing to, to, to rate is, like, the ratio of what I want to be doing and have what I'm motivated to do combined with talents to like that kind of base rate misallocation, right? Um, yeah, I am like the thing is that, is that I'm like seventy five percent competent, or sorry, confident that some kind of policy work is the right idea, and then, but that's still only seventy five percent, right? Yeah. I I still think like thinking about this more would be very valuable. Like literally thinking, you know, like what am I going to do for the next like five to 10 years? Right. Right. Even let's go with uh, hypothetically, let's say you're taking the the policy work path and then let's just brainstorm how to do that. I mean, one org that is interesting. Are you familiar with teach for America? Um, I think I remember like Andrew Yang talking about it a long time ago. So Andrew Yang actually started an offshoot or, or an organization inspired by teach for America. It was called venture for America. Right. Yeah. So Teach for America, I'm, I'm not surprised that you don't know about it. it. It used to be much more relevant like a decade ago. Um, like when I was, it, it's kind of lost its luster for whatever reason. But when I was in college, 
like I applied Teach for America, got in, and I was planning on being a teacher um, for at least for two years. Interesting. Now, and I would have been a special ed teacher in the Bronx. I have like no patience for, <laughs> for, for, like, <laughs> for even like, um, you know, amazing people who are like underperforming or something. Like I, you know, I would have been terrible. And so then the question you ask is like, how did, you know, Teach for America convince me to, to apply, get in and almost do it? Um, and they, they convinced a lot of people at top schools to do it. They, it's, it's a combination of like talk left, act right, right? Like they, they made it so prestigious in terms, it was super selective. So it was a top signal. So the, the idea was like, you would go do TFA for two years and then go to like Goldman Sachs or whatever, um, Bain or like, it, it was a career accelerator. Um, and they had all these mm-hmm. partnerships and they got all these brilliant people. And then they made them look like heroes. They were like, Hey, education's broken. You need to save education. And they're marketing or propaganda or whatever you want to call it was amazing. Um, and so like, if you want to do, if you want to shift talent into policy work, like what's your, what's your propaganda, right? Um, or or what, what, what is this org's propaganda? Like it needs, to, and I, I think that's where, you know, this biology is right. Like talk left, act right. In terms of like, um, it needs to be seen as like more moral and noble and important. And I, you know, you can obviously create that argument, um, but then also needs to be seen, in my opinion, as something that will like just be net better for their lives, even if they were non-ideologically motivated or non-morally motivated. Or, and so that's where partnerships with companies or partnerships with um, people, you know, who are like, if, if I was aiming to do what you, what you wanted to do, I would try to find someone like Abology or someone who's who's got credibility and saying, Hey, can we create this fellowship together? Can we create, you know, X, Y, and Z? like, if you, let's say your cause was network states or charter cities, like Balaji would definitely fund like a, a fellowship or grant program for people. I mean, he's effectively doing that. Right. And he's, he's right. Right. I'm, I'm familiar with CCI. Yeah. He, he shifted. CCI is great. Yeah. yeah. And, and Mark Lutter runs CCI, but like network state charter city move. I mean, it's still super early, but there are like hundreds of really talented people working on that that didn't exist prior. So like that, that's, that's a pretty big accomplishment. So like um, if you want hundreds of it that didn't exist prior, you know, I, I feel like there's a, a package, there's a bundle of things that, that people need and um, you know, being able to explain to their parents and people, people they went to college with and high school with like, or even be like have it on their LinkedIn profile needs to be seen as, as prestigious. And I think that's something that people, people who are, entering things from a place of truth seeking and integrity and mission driven sometimes because they themselves are impervious to some of these prestige or status games relative to others. They don't realize that others aren't as impervious. Um, and th- right. Th- right. I, I think like the biggest, the biggest motivator that I've come across so far, both for myself and for like other like-minded people, I've just been workshopping how to tell this, story exactly but uh have you ever seen the movie uh 20th century boys no i haven't seen it okay so so like the plot of the movie is that like a cult takes over japan uh and then eventually the world um and um there's a scene in the movie where the cult leader fakes his death and resurrection or like well technically some other guy who helps being the cult leader is shot instead but like he fakes his resurrection and um, what happens is that, like, they're already very famous. They're the ruling political party of Japan. And, like, the, the citizenry of Japan are, like, packed into the stadium. And, you know, like, 
tens of thousands of people. They're all cheering. They put up like the, their hand sign. It's like the cult sign. You know, all the people in the streets are stopping and they're putting up the cult sign, right? Um, it's just like this feeling of utter doom of like just complete sentiment in that like, is the world insane, right? Yeah. I, I remember like Eric Weinstein talking about a similar yes. uh, similar experience as well. He had the, uh, I forget, I'm blanking on the author's name, but he had the author... Um, Tim Curran, uh, Tim, the prep. No, 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 no. Uh, of the of the essay in the New York Times about um... Ag- not Agnes Callard. No, no, no. Uh, this this was when he read the essay. He he oh, read right. like this essay that was written a long time ago about the kind of like deny. It was like on the denial of um, on the denial of atrocities or something like that, right. And he had this quote, right, which was something like, um, right there, you've got their attention. Hold them and bold them before before they shake off, you know, before they shake off uh, their confusion like a puppy, uh, like a wet puppy or something like that, right? I, I'm forgetting the quote right now, but, like, I think that it's both true and incredibly powerful to emphasize that that's like that is the world we we live in to some degree right and we're going to talk about this later with egalitarianism but like it is like it is just true that it's genetically encoded in many people um or like it's an evolved pattern of behavior to deny reality in very specific ways that are responsible directly for you know some of the greatest missteps, the banning of innovative technologies. We can look at nuclear as like the the key example here of just creating, of like voluntarily creating this poverty and creating this like completely unnecessary um, struggle. And of course, even more in the past, right? With, with communism, um, with uh, really like a long record of these kind of, of anti-prosperity, anti-innovative movements. And to me, like, one really striking example of this was GDPR. Uh Um, GDPR is, you know, I I tweet this out fairly often. You know, I tweet one of two versions. Either, you know, the European Union is China with lower IQ or the European Union is China with lower IQ and far worse food. (laughs) Um, You know, depending on how many people I want to piss off. Um, but it is the case, you know, like controversy about the second part aside, it is the case that the European Union is just a less competent version of the Chinese government. The same motivations are there, the same motivation for kind of total control, the fear of anything disruptive. It's, it's exactly the same kind of psychological pattern. And they are, they have less power specifically because they are less competent, um, which, which, you know, might be a good thing in the end, might be a good thing. Um, especially compared to the circumstances that China had, you know, two, two or three years ago. But it is striking, just especially returning to GDPR, how many people like cheer that out, how many like normies, you know, like people who just don't pay attention to politics, how they thought this was like a good thing and not realizing that it just crushed, you know, thousands, if not millions of small businesses, of people who were really on the way up, who were going to have fundamental improvements and not even just small businesses, right? This was the grounds for Italy 
uh, banning ChatGPT, like literally like Chinese state behavior. Um, and this is just, you know, this was cheered on. This was celebrated. It, it's exactly the kind of 20th century boys moment, I think. The big idea is that like, essentially you, you're not living in a world where like the safety of your industry is guaranteed. And like empirically that's been the case, right? It's not like, you know, one, it's not 100% of the time the industry gets regulated out of existence, but it is like pretty common, right? If you were a nuclear engineer, you know, in like the fifties or sixties, you, you have seen that like real time. And I think that has happened to a few tech people. And that is why, you know, like, as Peter Thiel said, you know, liberty and democracy, or was it like democracy and freedom are no longer compatible. I don't think that's quite the case, but I do think the incentive is, is you basically need a lot of people, quite, quite frankly, like people like me, um, who are acting not in their self-interest in order for freedom and democracy to be compatible. Mm-hmm. Uh, how so? Say that, say that more. Say more about that. Because like, Right now, acting in my self-interest is like starting a tech company and becoming, you know, extremely wealthy, right? Um, certainly, there's there's a higher chance of becoming extremely wealthy doing, even though, like, you know, it's not guaranteed I might fail for sure. You know, I, I'm keeping that in mind. I'm, I'm for sure not like 100% confident that that'll happen, but certainly it's a much, um, much more likely path to um, wealth than, than, you know, doing machine learning policy, right? Like... Mm-hmm that the the incentive is like the the people who hate the market will will like go to areas outside of the market and in fact will work very hard to crush the market um the people who like the market will go into the market and succeed in the market um and so like like that's the core case you know of the free market selecting against the free market yes yes so your your marketing is basically tech needs a defense budget Tech needs a defense team. They're, yeah, that, that's a brilliant way to put it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that's strong marketing. I think it's interesting to look at this in the arc of how Silicon Valley, you know, said broadly, like tech has approached politics and kind of its its defense in the past and, and, and mostly how it hasn't had to. So let me give a brief overview. I mean, basically Silicon Valley in the you know late 2000s you know with obama and the arab spring was the darling of of the left like social media had ushered in um you know all this um freedom of of speech which was at the time uh, you know uh, corresponded with with left-wing causes uh arab spring being one of the biggest ones and then of course you know jack um you know, Dorsey's famously, you know, said stay woke, uh, you know, was was a big supporter of, of Black Lives Matter and, and DeRay and what was happening in Ferguson in 2014. So, I mean, Silicon Valley was a, was a darling for for uh, leftism in the late 2000s, early 2010s. And I saw this transition because I was, you know, my company Product Hunt is, you know, hyping technology startups, covering technology startups, and, and we were a darling. Um, and I saw the mood start to change. Um, and and they, they would use contradictory arguments. Like they would say, hey, everything that's on product hunt is just a silly app. Like all these tech people are working on all these silly things that are not important, not serious. And we need to, you know, they need to have a bigger impact. But then they would also say, 
the same time, hey, tech is taking over the world. It's it's you know having a bad impact. It's way too powerful. And and, and you know, and Trump really like you know the perception in, in many tech people's minds, in many people's minds, elites minds, is that in the same way social media had elected Obama, it had elected Trump. Now there were things before Trump that um, created this rift between Silicon Valley and the DNC, let's just say, um, I mean, that are worth emphasizing because it wasn't just Trump. It would, it would have likely happened regardless. Silicon Valley started to attack traditional American left power centers, New York Times, Hollywood. It started to go after academia too. First, it was enabling it, and then it started to replace it, like Netflix, the right. biggest you know, obvious example. Um, it started to undercut their prestige and influence. Um, it, it pulled away a lot of their top talent. You had people like Larry Summers, Eric Holder, um, David Plouffe, all working for tech companies. It became a more powerful global culture exporter, like Stanford taking over as number one school from Harvard, YC be- becoming like a top school. And, you know, Silicon Valley no longer needed the, the DNC. They built a network of super wealthy people with an alternate social network and path to power rather than work in government, you know, become CEO. Right, right, and, yeah. And, and so we had this tech lash and it was, it was, and what tech did is they responded by apologizing to it. By apologizing to it, giving money to left-wing causes, they thought that it would go away. It, in fact, the critiques got worse and worse. And what happened around, I'm fast forwarding a bunch, but what happened around COVID was you had a contingent of people who said, I'm not apologizing anymore. Actually, I'm like directly fighting back. Um, and those were people, to give some examples, like Balaji and like Mike Solana, who early on were, were saying, hey, like tech and journalists, while they used to be aligned, they are now like two different classes of people with, I mean, they compete economically you know, they compete for the same advertising dollars or they compete for intention. And then, um, two they're, they, they, um, they're just at odds. And so they were very aggressive. There was this very famous Balaji Taylor Lorenz uh, feud, which, um, was very wasn't controversial. It, uh, Mark, was it Mark Andreessen? Yeah, he was, he was defending, defending Mark, Mark's, uh, Mark's, uh, reputation. Um, um, and the, um, many people within tech, were either critical of people like Balaji or Solana or were uncertain. But the idea that you would fight back seemed either wrong or uncouth, that the people that were attacking tech were, were, were doing so in good faith and kind of deserved res- like respect and that actually tech needed to be account- held accountable by this separate class. And so the idea that tech needed a defense was didn't resonate with them. They, they would say, oh, we're so powerful. Like we actually, we're too powerful. We need accountability less so than the defense. We need people to attack us. We need people to critique us. In a, it's not attack, it's critique. And they're doing so from a place of, of love as Kara Swisher would say or something. And that started to change once a number of CEOs got fired. <laughs> once a number of, um, you know, regulations started to, 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 to pass or threatened to pass. And once San Francisco started to like, materially deteriorate in a way that was no longer deniable. And you started to see the ratio significantly change where when people were uncertain, like uncertain about supporting someone like Mike Solana, who around COVID maybe had like 5,000 Twitter followers. Now he's got like 220,000. Now fighting back against 
journalists against policymakers who um, who are you know attacking them. You know, the famous example was Zuck donating you know eighty million dollars or whatever amount of million dollars he donated to the hospital and then being vilified for it. And people like Mike Solano would go around and say, actually, he's good. Actually, like it's good that he donated eighty million dollars, and also it's good that he invented Facebook. Like, and so you started to have this class of tech defenders. And they did it via media and they, they didn't do it like they weren't making a ton of money off it. They, to your point, they did it outside of the, the market, but it did support their efforts. I mean, they, they built an audience off it. You know, Balaji uh, was an investor. Solana worked for a founders fund. Now he's starting a media company that, that has raised money. So I think tech appreciates or some elements of tech appreciate um, defense in a way they didn't, you know, 2017, 2016. So I think it's good timing. Because they thought at the time it was uncouth or or, or morally incorrect or something. So yeah, it's so it's so interesting. Um, sorry, go on, go on. Yeah, I would say is I, I think so. I, I think that's a strong marketing push. But then I think it's like you then get into the details of like defense from who and in what area, and um, if it's on the AI front, um, you know, I think people need to be more more persuaded i would say um that um you know woke ai is a big threat relative to just you know ai AI like uh safety in terms of eliza yudkowsky concerns i should Um, be clear at this point i think woke ai is like less of a threat than like them just like going after hardware um it's it's actually pretty similar to like what balaji said right it's the pivot from it's the pivot from what was it wokeism to statism yeah yeah, like, like like that to me, you know, like like the quote unquote, you know, like disinformation crowd, of course, purveyors of the worst disinformation uh, out there. Um, they're the ones who are pushing for um, essentially, you know, centralized control of um, uh, of uh, machine learning hardware, of essentially TPUs, GPUs, and the like. Uh, and, and there, I think, is the main venue of attack, as well as kind of financial attacks from the FTC. I didn't yeah. think. I mean, like, one thing. Like, I, I think, I don't think it's quite a distraction, but it's definitely a smaller venue. Uh, wokeness, I yep. think, is definitely a smaller venue than these kind of like, yeah, these kind of like statist, as you know, boomer conservatism, as it sounds, it's a correct description of yep. uh, what the threat actually is. But sorry, go on. And, and the what's interesting there is that the group of people that might be most sympathetic to that those concerns is actually the crypto slash web three world because they've operated since the beginning from uh, existential fear that the state is going to come down on them. And they are, you know, in many ways competing with, with state power. So, you know, they, they they know they need a defense. Um, And, you know, to some degree they've, they've invested in, in in defense, both on the media and on the kind of think tank front. So, um, I think there are other groups too, but I, I think it's a it's a strong positioning, and one would just need to get more specific in terms of which, you know, which causes, which which segments, and then which methods, right? Because there are there are media methods like Mike Solanas does, you just like fight fire with fire, and like whoever wins the Twitter war like wins the elites, basically, like just be better on Twitter, like win the game, and then there and some people do it on Twitter, some people do it on Substack, whatever, um, and then there are, um, you know, more policy, um, you know. Uh, ways of, uh, of 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 making change as 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 you know and as you're exploring as well and and yeah right 
I mean, okay, so, so you had this term, uh, talk left, act right. Um, for the audience, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, the, um, one second. To describe talk left, act right, you first have to talk about what is what is left and, and what is right. And there are a few different ways of of defining it. If if you define it ideologically, you know, you could use Brian Kaplan's um, definition that you've used as well. Like the left hates the markets, the the right hates the left. <laughs> um, or you know, Michael Malice has this quote: "Ask a right wing person if people are equal, they'll say no. Ask a left wing person if people are equal, they'll give you a speech." So it's this idea that, you know, left-wing people are favor more equality and right-wing people favor more hierarchy or will recognize that. And so, and there are other ways of, you know, slicing it ideologically. You could say the left is um, all about uh, universalism um, and all about, um, you know, uh, universalizing its, its, uh, its ideology and the right is, is more uh, narrow-minded, more, uh, you know, more tribalizing. Um, you could say the left is, more about um, you know more utopian and that they believe a better world is is possible and thus it's it's one's duty to make that happen and the right as perhaps more you know um, constrained that's to use Thomas Sowell's like constrained versus unconstrained vision about what's possible and thus accepting the limitations of what, what we can actually do anyways there are a number of ways of slicing it ideologically but then you say is it, is it actually an ideology because if you were to say you know what does the left believe and what does the right believe like you know, even as recent as 30 years ago, you might say, oh, you know, the left was anti-immigration, um, uh, anti-trade, anti-war, and today they seem to be pro all those things, or at least in war in terms of the sense of Ukraine. Like the idea, the ideas flip-flop, uh, you know, and the parties flip-flop on ideas. And so you can say, okay, maybe it's a, maybe it's a group of people. Um, this sort of, the, 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 the uh, and these left-right is more about tribal loyalty to that group of people than it is to a certain set of ideas. That's another way of looking at it. I think that's true to all these ways of looking at it. But the last way of looking at it, which relates to talk left, act right, is this idea of maybe it's a, um, well, and before I get to that, like the, the cleanest way of thinking about, you know, the group of people is is what we saw around with co- with with masks and basically, or in COVID in general, how the, the left flip-flopped, uh, you know, so quickly um, on, on, you know, whether they're you know, for masks or against masks, um, et, et cetera. And this idea of, you know, first it was racist to think that COVID was happening. And then it was, you know, you were a rube if you didn't think that we had to, you know, go on lockdown. And so um, maybe the third way of thinking about it is, is like, maybe it's a series of tactics, actually. Like maybe um, leftism is a um, way to um, sort of, rise up within a organization or, or make change. Basically it, it's, it's a way of calling for, um, more, you know, uh, respect to the downtrodden, um, either genuinely or, you know, um, unwittingly cynically, but you know, there's this phrase, of course, if you, if you aren't a liberal, when you're young, you have no heart, but if you aren't a conservative, when you're older, you have no brain. Um, and, and, and part of this can be explained by when you're older, you have more, more status. You, you've you've developed more c- 
capital, like actual capital, and then career capital, reputation capital, and you have more of a stake in society. But when you're young, you don't have that much. And so you want more. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe leftism is like a status acquisition tactic and rightism is a status retention tactic. Um, and so, um, then one, one has to ask the question, like, and so when you, the, the, the cynical way of saying talk left, act right is, um, basically like Harvard, right? Like Harvard is one of the, uh, you know, most fervent proponents of some, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, let's just say, or, you know. Um, kind of wokeness or, and I'm using Harvard as a metaphor for universities, elite universities. And at the same time, Harvard is the most exclusive place, in, in, you know, university in the world, in the sense that anyone in the world who would go to university would pick Harvard as their first university. And Harvard rejects, um, you know, has like the lowest acceptance rate and they advertise their lowest, lowest acceptance rate. So they're certainly exclusive. And also Harvard, like a university, has um, extreme lack of diversity as it relates to, um, you know, certain intellectual topics, right? So the talk left, act right is talk about sort of, in this case, diversity and inclusion, um, but then act in a, you know, non-diverse, you know, politically uniform and ex exclusive way. Um, and, you know, like Harvard both has sort of the moral, like you would think from their language and like New York Times too, New York Times advertises itself as literal truth. Harvard, you know, advertises itself as like a beacon of knowledge, you know, all these amazing things. And, you know, and in, in for the, for the good of it itself. And yet it's sitting on like a $40 billion, you know, endowment. I mean, there's so many like, <laughs> you know, capitalist things about what, what Harvard is doing. Um, and capitalism in the bad way, like crony capitalism. Um, and, and this, there are more examples I shared in my, post called the hypocrisy of elites, where the people that were, you know, advocating for defund the police, um, more often than not, were white people who did not live in high crime areas. Right. And so yeah. defund the police served as a way for them to signal that they were, um, you know, left wing and thus, um, you know, more moral and more noble and more caring, but acting right in the sense that, you know, they have you know, live behind gates or don't live in high crime areas. And, and you see this actually like in many, many different issues, whether it's about, you know, gifted programs in schools or um, body positivity uh, or, you know, relationships, polyamory, like, um, or the environment, right? Like the people who are spreading the most left-wing egalitarian messages are the, the wealthiest people who in their own private lives you know, do send their kids to, to private school, do work out a ton, do end up getting married and in monogamous relationships, do inflict the largest carbon footprint. Um, and so that is kind of the, the talk left, act right on an individual level. And on an organizational level, it's, it's this idea that you need a mission. Um, you know, the left is, you know, one way of saying it is the left is optics, the right is substance. And, you know, if you don't have optics, that itself is like a lack of substance, like you need both, right? Like you need a mission that is going to inspire people in a democratic way. And when I say democratic, I mean, like you need mass coordination, right? Certainly to win elections, you need masses to, to, to vote. And they're likely going to vote for the thing that promises them more stuff <laughs> or, you know, something better. But then also on a corporate level, like you, you, you want to appeal to, to customers, you want to appeal to recruits. And those people need to tell the rest of the world a story 
about how they are making the world a better place. And, um, you know, saying we're going to make a more efficient hierarchy, um, you know, is, is not as inspiring as we're going to have, you know, equality of opportunity, which of course is a weasel word because no such thing exists, but it, it's, it's actually a good example of, um, you know, that is a, a left optically type thing. Um, but you know, when done right is actually a, you know, a right wing, um, concept. So, um, that's, that's what I mean when talk left act right is basically appeal to the more reasonable sides of, of egalitarianism, ones that everyone would get behind. Um, but then also ensure that you are acting in a way that is, is, you know, going to be lead to most success for your organization. Right. I think some of that, I think some of that really does kind of show how deep of a hole we're in. Like I, um, do you know who Parisia is? Uh, who pa- pa- Parisia? Like Eve, Eve's Par. No, what's that? At, at least that's the name he goes by on the internet. I don't know if that's his actual name. Um, yeah, he writes this news newsletter called uh, Parisia. Uh, he's kind of in similar circles as uh, Richard Hanania and I, and like ideas sleep furiously. Um, th- this kind of crowd, and he he like calls this circle like right wing rationalism, right? And, and his idea. Um, and this is kind of inspired by something like Richard Hanania said on my podcast is that like the right wing just needs to focus on like factual things that it knows are true, like genetic differences and like, um, uh, and like, um, uh, market efficiency and like basically like basically just like read statistics and like, and like, uh, evolutionary psychology, right. Basically just like point at facts that are like that, that like the left wing denies, Right. So to, me, to me, like this is like saying, you know, we're going to build an entire movement that's like, you know, like, like just imagine the left wing version of this. Right. The left wing equivalent of this is like the only thing that we are going to run on is that like vaccines reduce mortality. Um, uh, higher carbon emissions is correlated with higher average global temperature. Like, like a left wing that is like that inert. Right. Just would not exist. Right it needs to have the kind of like, it needs to tell you what to think. It, it can't like, it can't just like provide evidence. Like, like it, it just would not function. Um, that, that to me is like, I mean like the, the black pill, like, like the pessimistic take is that like right-wing rationalism wouldn't work either. Right. It, right-wing rationalism, you know, like, but at the same time, you know, you have Macron. So like. There, there's this broad question yeah. as to whether if you're going to compete with the left, do you do so on leftist terms or tactics, or do you reject the premise entirely? And and the math. Well, what do you mean it? by leftist tactics here? So, but what I mean by let's take math for example. Like, um, you know, there some schools were banning algebra or, or whatever it is, or you know, like um, restricting people, like you know, um, gifted programs, stuff like that. The left wing tactic would be to say, no, we need gifting programs. We need to teach kids algebra. Because that is the way that people from low-income backgrounds are going to get ahead. And by restricting that, you are getting rid of, um, what's it called? Like uh, equality of opportunity. Um, you're, you're reducing you know, uh, social mobility. That's a left-wing tactic. The right-wing tactic would be to say, actually, like hierarchy is good. And yeah, people are genetically different. And we should let the, um, you know, the, the most brilliant people rise to the top and let the chips fall where they may. 
it's it's focusing more on the, uh, accelerating the top uh, than um, you know bringing up the the, the bottom. Um, oh, this was like completely different than what I thought you meant. Uh, we'll put on pin on, on that, but we can talk about this right now. Um, I think it's very context dependent. I think a lot of the time as well, it's like salience based, right? Like if you're running an election, um, you should just draw as much attention to the to the math topic as possible because it's a it's a classic wedge issue, right? It unites Republicans, splits Democrats. You know, like there, there's not a single Republican who's going to be like, you know, actually we don't like math, right? No. Um, but there are actually a lot of Democrats that you know, like we mentioned, Renee Deresta, right? Like yeah. Renee Deresta supports teaching kids math. Right. Yeah. Like, exactly. Yeah. And, and she, um, she does so on, on leftist grounds. But the, the the Richard's idea around like recognizing genetic differences, mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to be very effective. <laughs> well, it depends what your goals are. But like that is, um, you know, the benefit from a pure tactical perspective. I guess you're playing in places where the other side won't play. But that is such a controversial issue for like it's so anti-leftist. And you know, we swim in a, in a leftist water. We swim in a liberal water. And it's, it's, you know, one of our foundational myths is around kind of, you know, moral equality, equality of opportunity, social mobility, um, American dream, and genetic differences just has so much implications. Now, um, I certainly think that, you know, everything should be able to be studied and we should like, you know, we shouldn't restrict knowledge that, that would be, um, you know, beyond the pale um, in, a, in a way that, that is happening now. But in terms of an actual like platform that is going to move people in either the private sector, unless it's you know a genetic company, or the public sector, I don't see it. Do you see it? What's the argument? Right, like as motivation. I mean, like I think to like talk about this properly, we kind of have to talk about like why egalitarianism is motivational. Um, I'll, I'll ask you first, like, why do you think egalitarianism motivates people? We used to live in societies that were very stratified and they were deliberately stratified. There was very little social mobility. And as a result of that, there was very little status anxiety because you knew where you stood. And if you were at a high place, that, um, was because you were ordained for that. And if you were at a low place, it wasn't like you failed. Um, and then we introduced a much more socially mobile society. And as a result, where you ended up in society was up to you and your effort. And so at that point, things became much more high stakes. And so people's entire concept of self-worth you know, ended up, you know, would, would be where they were in, in, in society. And so in order to, I'm greatly simplifying, obviously, but in order to make sense of, of, of this or kind of reduce the, the, anxiety that comes with everything being up to you, um, you know, certain environmental factors were, um, were introduced (laughs) so that, or emphasized, I should say, so that it's, it's not really up to you. It's up to, it's up to the environment. That's just easier to take. And so if you're a successful person, um, you are effectively a threat to people who are non-successful because your success implies that they didn't try hard enough. Um, and so you could say, okay, what we're going to do in- instead is we're going to introduce um, genetic or environmental reasons, right? I mentioned the environmental reasons, but like if you introduce genetic reasons, well, the problem with that is then how much social mobility really is there. And then you're back into a stratified society back where you started. You don't want to do that. 
but so, you get re- re- regression to the mean, right? It's not completely, it's not, intelligence is not 100% heritable, nor is right. most traits. Yeah. M- most people can't really understand the nuance. <laughs> the, that's, the, fair. The, that's fair. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, most people think that moral equality should equate with other kinds of equality um, as well. Um, and, and, and the truth is, like, we do bestow more moral significance to people who've been more successful. Like, we just celebrate them. We bestow more status onto them. And so the... Um, right, but that's because of the genetic not, right? Like, that's because they believe that, like, that person... It's like, this right. is something that I'm personally very annoyed by, right? right? Like, the conservative, you know, like, pull yourselves up by the, your bootstraps argument, Yeah, right? Like, think- that is a form of genetic denial. That is a form of kind of, like, egalitarianism. Yeah. That, like people believe they believe that like people are literally created equal. Yeah. At the same time, there is a, um, you know, there are things that are optimal for the individual and there are things that are optimal for the group. Right. And so for the, for society and for society, it might be optimal um, or I'll, I'll tell you some reasons, not an optimal, but it might be more constructive to, to, to like um, not have it super obvious what everyone's IQ is. Right. Because let's say like there are people who don't have super high IQ who've achieved a lot of things who've been very accomplished. And um, if there was a world in which they were known what their IQ was, maybe they just wouldn't have gone for them. And it, like another much more provocial example is, is entrepreneurship, right? If, you know, people, there's this joke, uh, I didn't try to, to do this because I thought it, uh, because it was easy. I tried to do it because I thought it would be easy. Right. Not, not because, <laughs> yeah. um, and so like people, entrepreneurs are acting irrationally in, in many ways. Um, they don't know that the likelihood, or if they knew that the likelihood of the success was what it actually was, they might not pursue uh, entrepreneurship. Um, and that's what happens when people become more knowledgeable of of probabilities. They tend to index more, right? Because on an individual level, you'd rather you know cap your upside if you can cap your downside, you know, on average. Now, from a societal level, like we benefit from thousands of people trying to be the next Elon Musk, even if it only means a handful. Of Elon Musk because the outliers outweigh everything else. And so within entrepreneurship, at least I think there's a benefit to certain irrationality um, or, or I should say lack of understanding of probabilities because, um, you know, the the outlier benefits outweigh the, the costs of people trying. Um, when everyone becomes a rational automaton who understands probability, they just become much more uh, you know, much less dynamic, right? Much less willing to take the risks that that society needs. And I, I think you can extrapolate out. I mean, certainly there are a ton of costs with the kind of denialism that you're you're discussing. Um, I'm also elucidating that there might be some uh, some costs with with the opposite of the denialism, with really coming to terms with with what one's odds in society are and. Um, and in some ways, it cuts against the, the you know some of the simplifications or myths that that tie our fabric together. This, this idea of the of the American dream of social mobility. Do do, do we still want that narrative? Um, I think in some ways we do. Um, and how how would you react to that? Right. Um, when it comes to entrepreneurship, I don't think it's like. It's like somewhat G-loaded, but it's not completely G-loaded, right? Like a study mentioned in Tyler Cowen's book, um, Talent, is that I think like, was it Sweden? I think it was Sweden that like the average IQ is only uh, 130, right, of entrepreneurs. And of course, you'll have people on both sides of that. Um, so I think like, would it be would it be disincentivizing or would it be incentivizing? I'm not sure. I think like, you know, like the rough 
the rough approximation people have of like the average entrepreneur's IQ is probably uh, higher than uh, than, than yeah, well, actuality. Let me let me give you an example. I mean, I, I think there sometimes there's tension between truth and social cohesion, and you know there are people like Sam Harris who I you know I really like despite his re- recent um, efforts, but like. He, um, you know, his book lying, like never lie, like, you know, like truth always and all, 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 all times, like one, a really interesting example, you know, IQ is interesting. Another example is like, um, dating apps, right? Like mm. imagine if dating apps released all their data, if all the data was public around, I'm sure they have like, you know, people get ratings in the system and let's just say like, you know, um, someone is a nine out of 10 and, and all the matches they get. And someone is a one out of 10, not someone like a third of the country or whatever, just gets like zero. Like imagine the type of inequality that exists on dating apps and imagine knowing how hopeless it really is. Like, I mean, there's already a ton of incel hopelessness to begin with. Like, don't you think that that like information would further disempower people? Like, wait. So if people knew the correct, or like knew the ratio of activity on dating apps, they would be less incentivized to what, like, to, to use dating apps. Like, I, I don't really to see put themselves out there. Like, it's to okay. to put themselves out there. Like, because re- like entrepreneurship. I mean, like in, in dating, you have to, you know, it. You need well, you only need one success, you know, to make a marriage, but you might need to try a lot. Um, and some people might say, oh, you know. My, the odds are really stacked against me. I need to, um, you know, work that much harder. And other people might say, oh, it's totally hopeless. I mean, this is the same thing the left actually does on, on race, right? Like, and the right will criticize them for it. They'll, they'll say, hey, certain groups have it so stacked against them that there's this actual privilege, you know, the other groups have. And, and people on, on the other side will say, hey, by doing this, you are disempowering them. And so there's, there's a question of like, should we pick the narratives that are most empowering? You know, David Brooks once said something like, when you went on a macro level, everything is, is uh, environmental or you should, you should, you know, uh, overweight environment on a micro level, you should overweight individual, um, you know, uh, nurture, like you should in- individual opportunity to change one's circumstances. Now it may be the cost is, Hey, you overweighted that and they couldn't change the circumstances. And now they, um, you know, are upset because of that. But the positive is you get a bunch of people trying to change their circumstances and some of them actually do. Right. Like the bias of optimism I'm, I'm fine with, right. Like this kind of, like, I don't know, like, I don't know if I like specifically myself would kind of engage in the bias towards optimism. Right. But, but like that, I get, yes. I don't yeah. think the egalitarian narrative is a bias towards optimism. If anything, like, maybe like in, in a vacuum or maybe like the boomer conservative version is a bias towards optimism and then it's fine. Right. Yeah. But like in practice, that is not the egalitarian narrative, right? Like you already mentioned this a little bit, but the egalitarian narrative is like, Oh, it's all because of racism. It's all because of like capitalist oppression. Right. It's, it's not, you know, like, yeah, like, yeah, maybe, maybe you in the ideal world, right. We, we do like the boomer conservatism thing of like, yeah, everyone, everyone needs to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. Like, I don't know if, if they, you know, censor genetics research based on that yeah. or whatever, but that, that's not really what the right does, at least not now. I, right. I, I, they, 
sorry. Um, and, and yeah, like, I would not be, like, completely opposed to, you know, making, like, the bootstraps narrative the kind of, like, national mythology, right? But that is just, as long as it stays there. But yeah. it just has not stayed there. It, it just is so vulnerable, you know, like, when you, when you have, you know, like, when you have that... It is kind of like, if you start with that assumption and people are like, oh, if, if, you know, if everyone is born equal, if everyone has an equal chance of succeeding, you know, then, then why are there group differences, right? Yeah. Like, like, when you start with that, it's, it's kind of like a, like a uh, principle of explosion, right? In math, you start with any false claim, you can get to anywhere. Um, you, you can get to, you know, the claim that like one equals two uh, very easily. Um, and... Right. Like, like if, if there is some kind of stable state where, you know, everyone is a kind of like bootstraps, conservative, libertarian forever, like that would be kind of understandable, you know, like from a deontological perspective, maybe I'd still oppose it. But, you know, I, I think that we'd have much bit, bigger problems to worry about. But like that just isn't reality. That just isn't the world we live in. Yeah. Um have we lived in a society that was, you know, in accordance with all, like all things true? Like has every society had its own, um, its own myths that have helped um, create, you know, some sort of harmony and yeah, they are, um, you know, um, liable to be warped for nefarious self-seeking ends, but this is the the state of society. Like, is- Yeah, for, for sure, for sure. It's always, you know, it's always yeah. incremental, right? It's always marginal it's always, you know, like we're not fighting to kind of as much as Jarvin would like to, you know, we're, we're not fighting to, to turn into like a kind of startup government. I'm just fighting to like have the ML ban, have the machine learning ban be at least postponed, if not averted, right. Hopefully averted, but it's all, yeah. Yeah. I I agree with you that like in, in practice, you know, it's all marginal. It's all about making things slightly better than they used to be. And that's, that's like the approach I have to things too. So yeah. like, yeah, I don't think we're ever going to, you know, like fully, or at least in the short term, I don't think we're going to solve the egalitarian problem at all. Yeah. Um, and I, there's a level of egalitarianism that seems to be just a fit strategy for people who are trying to pursue, you call it making a difference. You could call it status seeking. Um, it seems to be a way for them to do that um, in, in, you know, various- I mean, it's kind of like a, like a sorting mechanism though, right? Yeah. Like, like when you do that, you're kind of attracting- in some cases, the wrong people. Like if I were right, or like, yeah, like if I were trying to attract people to government policy, right, I would prefer, you know, like all attractors of people, all, all pipelines of government policy kind of actively selected against egalitarianism, right? Like I think that would lead to better outcomes. But yeah, in like certainly there are circumstances where I think that that's true. Yeah, well, most people tend to optimize for themselves. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and more so, and this is like the Moloch idea, like everyone just acting on their own, you know, accordance, you know, own self-interest could lead to some great um, negative things. But I, I think, you I'm know, actually very skeptical of that. Uh, I think that like people are not really rational. And in, in a lot of circumstances, the thing that is leading to people to the, the in many cases like the problem is like people who have power and who are rational kind of not 
going to their full extent of how they could use that power. Right. Like, like I, I think that like people who have power and kind of abide by basic rationality norms should wield that power more. Do you think that they are optimizing for, for like, um, if they were optimizing for self-preservation, would they be doing, you know, and, and self interest, self benefit, would they be doing something different? Like, are they poorly, um, optimizing even for like selfish gains? Uh, in many cases, yes. Right. Of, of, of course, this is a case by case basis, but yeah. for, for example, example, like, yeah, for, for example, you know, like many governors, um, pre DeSantis, like it would have benefited both kind of electorally and kind of long-term politically for like more governors to ban CRT. Right. Yep. Like it, it is both a kind of like politically successful move. And it is also like a, like a strategically successful move. Um, in that you're kind of denying, denying resources from left-wing patronage networks. Yeah. Like, yeah. like a lot of the time, right. This is, this is a lot of the kind of like new right thing is that like, yeah, in terms of like efficiency, right. I'm not sure, you know, some of them also think they're skeptical of kind of like trade, right. But a lot of the time it's just like, there is an obvious opportunity for kind of, for a politician to like gain power for like the vague right or like not even right right like banning crt is that really against you know kind of like um matt iglesias thought or whatever right like not the ban but like the action itself right like so it's like beneficial to like 70 80 percent of the country um and it's like and simultaneously it's it is in their self-interest right it actually does help them politically and they just don't do it it is kind of what you're talking about, about risk aversion. I think yeah. like, yeah, a lot of uh, right-wing politicians are pretty risk averse. I think there's a broader question as to like, you know, should you talk left, act right? Or should you talk right, act right? I mean, um, and just I mean, I mean, we're kind of defining right as the kind of like right-wing rationalist thing that I was talking about earlier, where you just say true things that are inconvenient. Yeah. There are also like real right-wing ideologies, right? Like populism and traditionalism, right? Like, like this is, this is kind of why like a lot of people don't consider me right-wing, right? Like yeah. I, like it, it's kind of like the Nietzsche unbelievability critique, right? My life is just structured in such a way that it's so difficult to believe in traditionalism. My life is structured in such a way where like, you know, every day I'm walking around this, like, I'm walking around this, like, honestly, all things considered pretty nice city, but I'm talking to like so many people um many of them are you know like my fundamental behaviors like most of my behaviors are not oriented towards like any kind of rooted tradition right like this is kind of a reason why i don't necessarily consider myself right wing because like there are right wing moral appeals those are like an actual thing it's just that they've been kind of erased from a large portion of people's like historical memory like people who don't like actively you know, research, think about this stuff or aren't involved in say some kind of religious tradition in some way. Right. Like there, there is a thing of like actual, like there's a thing of like actual, there's like an actual right wing and it's like not just rationalists. I agree. I agree. And, and in some ways those are big threats to the actual right wing. Like I'll give an example, like some like biology is very, although he, you know, um, is very good at optics. Um, he, he is, he is not egalitarian. He really believes in, you know, merit and hierarchy. And he's also, you know, uh, 
you know, he's a family man, got a bunch of kids. Like there's certain sympathies that, you know, he, the right wing would have with him and he would have with the right. But he, he's also a transhumanist. And he's yeah. also like radically pro-tech. Um, let's pursue, you know, life extension, infinite frontier, um, you know, break up America. I, mean, I don't want to speak for him in, in that regard, but like in ways that many right-wing people would think of him as like a bigger threat to the right that they know or, or the things that they hold dear, you know, uh, God, country, um, than, than even, you know, some mainstream or normie Democrats. So yeah, there are certainly, you know, big fissures with, within the right as there always have been. Yeah, like, I don't know. I, I myself would definitely not consider Balaji right wing. Um, I'm not sure if he would consider himself right wing. No, I don't think so. I don't, yeah. yeah, I don't consider myself right wing. Yeah, like, I um, I think, you know, many people, certainly in tech, are, you know, politically homeless, right? Um, yeah. I, I think, like, in, in many cases, yeah. right, like, I don't know. Like, like this is very funny. Like, the thing is that like my revealed preferences are right wing, right? Like like I don't like I don't I want to get married early. I don't want to have sex before marriage. Like my my revealed preferences are pretty socially conservative, but I also I'm pretty convinced by like polling data, and like the conclusion that I've drawn from polling data is that you know that there's no public morality. People won't vote for thing. People won't vote for basically like societal parental controls, right? And, and with some of the abuses that that could end up with like that, that's probably a good thing, right? Like that people in general will not hold themselves to a higher standard of kind of social morality. And so like you generally, like this kind, this is like not quite the Curtis Yarvin take, but this is somewhat similar to it in that like most pursuits of social conservatism, and I mean like social conservatism, as in like the traditional version, not not necessarily like banning CRT, right? Um, but like you know, like abortion, right? Ro- Roe v. Wade is kind of like a great example of this, right? That, that that's just going to piss people off, and that that's not really going to actually make the country more socially conservative, in in any kind of meaningful way. Um, like like the the way I differ from Yarvin, is that like. He thinks that this this means that you should like, you know, he he wrote the entire like hobbits and dark elves thing. He he thinks that you should really like basically like defer to elites. While I think that it's more of a, I'm more of a kind of like Bology. I'm more sympathetic to Bology's idea of like moral, um, basically like morality first network states, right? I think you know there should be a very socially conservative, um, you know, uh, charter city in like Utah or something where, you know, you're just not allowed to have abortion. And, you know, if, if, you know, birth rates continue, right. We'll end up with the entire U S like mostly not having abortion because everyone's, you know, every, you know, with um, generational uh, selection, most of the people in the future who are having kids will be people. Well, we'll kind of by definition, who will, have, will be people who have not aborted their kids. Um, I, I kind of see like that vision as, as like a vision of social conservatism that I can get behind. But like in terms of like short term social conservatism, it does seem like it, it it does seem like a misevaluation of like how fucked we are in the present. The Curtis Balaji kind of access is, is interesting as a way of 
you know, showing the different points. I mean, Curtis used Balaji and, you know, any other kind of, you know, uh, non-left-wing sort of idea entrepreneurs, let's just say, as further empowering the left. Um, and so he sees, you know, the Rufo types and, and but even, even Balaji. Um, and so they'd be better off doing nothing, like, quote, unquote, you know, winning by losing um, and waiting for, you know, as Lenin said, like the, the conditions for the revolution are not yet present or something. And so, um, whereas Balaji thinks that Curtis is just giving up and Balaji doesn't want to wait like 30 years, you know, and watch the country turn into Brazil or, or whatever the, the concern is, Balaji thinks that actually like impact can be done. Um, you know, things can be fought and, you know, Twitter can be taken over <laughs> um, and, and maybe other things as well. And so I think that's another thing that's interesting is because like people will differ on, on, on what should be. Um, and they will also differ on the tactics in terms of how to, uh, how to get there. Right. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah. I think like what's really interesting about these political theories of change is that they're like, they're almost inverted in that the libertarians I think are more passive and the populists can actually believe that something can be done. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like uh, I remember I, I saw, um, so Rob Sharma, friend of, of the show, like there, there was like, there was like uh, some kind of new right figure saying something like, would you rather have the New York Times or would you rather have, would you rather have control of the New York Times or, or uh, control the Senate? And then uh, I think like, I don't remember the exact tweet, tweet but Saurabh Sharma, who is, I think the uh, president of American Moments, uh, which is this, vaguely new right aligned um uh policy pipeline uh for um yeah vaguely new right aligned policy pipeline he said definitely the senate this isn't 2016 right so so like they have this idea or, or at least he has this idea but i think the sentiment is pretty widely shared that like actually the right wing knows how to use power now or at least has a better idea of how to use power now and that actually governments or like being in charge of government does matter and that it is you know it is impactful and that there can be policy steps that can be done we already talked about Richard Nania right he sort of although I'm sure he um he disagrees um with some of Sorob's uh policy preferences that there there is definitely um policy that can be done policy that can be implemented once republicans have control again to actually do something about these problems so i think actually it's interesting there were like moments of despair but i think like within the new right i would say that like despair is kind of trending downwards so there's there's increasingly a lot of um there's a lot of white pills being sold i agree i, I think sf is actually an interesting microcosm there because the situation was pretty dire and it's still dire in, in, in many ways, but, you know, people is it it ironic because people were saying, Hey, tech is, you know, 
this evil or, you know, giant monster taking over the world. And yet it couldn't even sway, you know, local elections that require like a few thousand votes that, you know, directly affect its interests. And so right. there's this great like contradiction there. And I think, you know, at, at some point during COVID, it just became too much. And, and people like the all in people just said, Hey, like we can actually get Chesa, the DA um, recalled. Like we can actually get the school board recalled. Like we can actually like using our influence, like make a difference. And where previously we thought we were too good for it or we didn't want to do it. Now it's just encroached in our lives in, in enough material ways. I see all the people who are moving out of San Francisco that like this effort is needed and it will, you know, impact our bottom line. And also it became like high status thanks to people like Mike Solana who were, you know, fighting the, the, the fight of ideas. So, I mean, I, I think SF is just a, a, an example of a situation where people um, got involved locally and are continuing to get involved and made a difference. And now there's kind of a, you know, whole ecosystem there. And I think you're seeing that sprout, sprout up in other places uh, as well. Yeah. At the end of like, actually, you know, you know this better than I do, right? What is the sentiment among, uh, essentially like Bay Area uh, uh, founders and investors? Like, what is their orientation towards politics in the year twenty twenty three? Well, most of them are not political thinkers. I mean, most of them right. are trying to you know, run their company <laughs> and be successful, like do their job and do it well and have a nice private life. Um, and um, what happened was it was sort of the, you know, you may not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. Yeah. And politics started investing all these companies. And it, and it was, it was kind of, uh, you know, ironic and tragic. Like you have these, you know, Indian and Chinese CEOs, like learning the intricate, like, you know, who don't know the intricacies of U.S. race relations or you know, U.S. You know, politics now having to defend against all sorts of accusations of of prejudice or, or, or think, things that hold back that if they were to, um, you know, concede to would, would hold back their company, essentially. And so Silicon Valley is primarily involved in politics to the to the effect that it impacts Silicon Valley. It's like one one voter issue um, now. That is both in terms of like their ability to run companies, but also in terms of their ability to like be seen as as good and not get regulated. And for many, you know, people and companies, their approach to not getting regulated is to comply with the regime, <laughs> or that, that, that's like you know, or quote unquote regime. Right. Like if you, I, I didn't, th- I didn't know, you know, the lions eating faces uh, party would eat my face. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so I, I think that's like predominantly. Um, you know, the, the, the method of, of operating, I, I think, you know, there is a intellectual class as well within Silicon Valley, even if it's a small minority that, that cares, you know, that I think is trying to, um, in, a, in an emergent way, sort of create this culture of something that is not, um, you know, that is not woke, but that is not, you know, boomer or Trump either. Um, and so, you know, it doesn't have a name yet. Um, I think Pirate Wires uh, embodies most of it um, or, uh, or, or a lot of it. And I think that's why he's built such a strong audience. Um, I, I think there's a real question as to like, there's like electoral politics, like will 
you know, will they support Trump? Certainly not. Um, so no way. Um, what about DeSantis? I think, I think it's to be decided. I, I think, you know, David Sachs yeah, has, well, got, David has gone Sachs on DeSantis, DeSantis, but yeah. I, I think people are still unsure. I mean, DeSantis is not as distasteful, but he's certainly leaning into aggressive culture. And it's not like he's like a techie or, you know, really like understands or appreciates um, tech. Um, so I think it's, um, I think it's unclear, but I think, I mean, Silicon Valley, like many fields that have, be, you know, attracted like, a lot of really amazing talent because of all their wealth, you know, attracts a lot of agreeable people. Like most in order for companies to scale and get big and have impact, you need a lot of agreeable people. I mean, you need like disagreeable people as founders and as like, you know, builders without the org, you need some balance basically between disagreeability and agreeability, but like on a large dimension, certainly like morally, um, Silicon Valley is like very agreeable. It wants to be seen in good standing. I mean, it's your, your point about ESG, like they want to be seen as doing well and doing good and like making money. Um, and so, and the left is just better. Galatinium is just often a better narrative, like one that seems more palatable than like pursuing excellence, you know, excellent. That's like not, not as much in vogue. Like people who are promoting excellence haven't done a great uh, marketing job relative to people promoting egalitarianism. Um, and so, right. yeah, Part it of this like, is because like chasing after the real thing involves like efforts and involves being actual, like, like being excellent is just like a much more difficult thing than being egalitarian, right? Like, especially in an environment like SF, right? Or especially in an environment in certain companies where, you know, the baseline is already really high, you know, like it's one thing to be, ex- you can be egalitarian with anyone. But it's like, you know, it's one thing to be excellent at like, you know, some random, some random public college. It's another thing to be excellent at like open AI, right? Yeah. Like you really have to be, you know, if that's your legitimating narrative, right? You really have to be, you know, like on a completely other, le- other level. Like maybe Elon can do that, right? Like, but yeah, like, like kind of like the higher, you know, like the higher the bar is. The, the higher, you know, the higher relative to it you have to be. Um, right. It is, it is pretty interesting, though. Like, here's an interesting case where I think, like, immigration maybe marginally solves this problem, right? It might make others worse, like lockdowns, anti-market sentiment. But in, I think, like, in a very noticeable way, immigrants kind of understand intuitively like both meritocracy and genetic differences much more um yeah i do think like this is a very strange one because it's like it's coded exactly the opposite way right like left-wingers supposedly like immigrants right-wingers um right-wingers supposedly dislike immigrants um i don't know a lot lot of right-wingers uh say you know like we like legal immigrants we dislike illegal immigrants um yeah but but in general it's kind of coded as left wing but i think the in terms of like within the tech ecosystem within like what works in tech i think it's almost you know 180 degrees the opposite way like like the white people like the egalitarianism the immigrants like the meritocracy um I think that is generally how it is. Like, the, I think that is generally like the intra tech scene, right? Yeah, it, I mean, it is interesting. Like, 
maybe at the same time, like, you know, a lot of companies now have Indian CEOs and like you, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this on the fly, but like you, those companies are often like peacetime companies. I mean, yeah, you could say Satya true. right now is wartime. And, you know, these are anecdotes, but like a lot of these immigrants, well, I'm not even sure if they're immigrants, if they're Indian, just but like have grown like up. Born in, yeah, born in America. Yeah, yeah, either born in America or went to like American inspired universities. I mean, there's certainly like, like there is something to the idea that Wes Yang said about Andrew Yang, which is he, because he is neither white nor black, he is not like a threat or he's not part, like there is something, mm-hmm. um, and one thing that's interesting about Asian people that like go to Ivy League schools and like are smart enough to understand that they're like being systemically discriminated against. And yet in many scenarios, I'm sure you've seen this, like actually support it. Um, and no, no, no. Like- you're, you're just misunderstanding the selection effect here, right? Like Asians, like Asians who are good at school mostly are just like apolitical, right? Like, the selection effect here, especially for like egalitarian ideologies, is like Asians who are not good at school and whose parents are disappointed in them. Like that is the constituency. That yes. constituency specifically, right? Like, like if if like here is like the thing. Like I disagree with a lot of like the mandatory voting things, right? But if, if you had like mandatory voting, the um, Asians as a demographic would seem uh, would go in a very different way. And, like, even in countries like Canada, right, Asians are much more of a swing vote. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, and, and certainly in SF, they've, they've had a huge uh, in, impact. I mean, I, I think one thing to think about, like, more broadly in this conversation is if Elon Musk is, you know, literally, like, as talented as it gets, like, as, as credible and as talented as it gets, and even he, in his most recent turn to be more, well, one, you could call it more right. I mean, there's a number of things you could say about him, but like, it's it, it seems like he's, it, or it's unclear that he's better off for it. Like, I, I hear he's having a harder time attract talent than when he was more politically neutral. Um, he certainly, I'm sure, is upgrading, you know, introducing new talent to the 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 the, the right. I would say, um, or to anti-left or anti-woke ideas. Yeah. Like Um, Elon Musk is kind of like peak right-wing rationalist, right? Like he, he's, you know, he's had like IVF children, like how many now? 11, you know, he's pro-choice. Like he, he, like how far apart are like Elon Musk and Richard Hanania ideologically, right? Like probably not that far. Um, Right. And, but the question, the question is like, is he taking a sacrifice for doing so? And, you know, if yes, basically, like, if you want more people to shift ideologically, like, it's hard to rely on people to make sacrifices, because that, 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 how's that going to happen at scale, right? So, yeah, that's to, fair. Yeah, at at the it, end of the day, you know, like, there are things there, there are things that cannot be accomplished without like a shift in the state religion, you know, right. like, I, I did say I did say that I don't reasonably expect to um, to kind of like overturn you know the egalitarian conspiracy theory that is you know like the state religion of the United States, but would be nice, right? <laughs> yeah, like like I do think yeah I, I do think what you're saying is like 
Um, right, we don't have too much time, but I can kind of give the brief version of this. I know I did send you this in a in in a oh, write up, but I actually think that like a lot of social traditions are kind of like are are not like restricting egalitarianism or sorry, are not like in favor of egalitarianism, but are rather restricting egalitarianism, right? Like this is kind of based on a book, Hierarchy in the, in the Forest by Christopher Bohm. Um, I talked about it with Mark, Hen- or sorry, why did I say Mark? Rob Henderson uh, earlier in this, po- in or like not earlier, but like, yeah, in an earlier episode. Sorry, I'm getting a bit tired. And the thesis of the book is that we had egalitarian societies for much of hunter-gatherer history. And the way that those egalitarian societies came about is um, by uh, brutal murder. So if someone was significantly more talented, attracted significantly more more mates, right? You kind of had, like, like the, the long arc of history was, like, basically, like, incel crime, right? It was basically, like, egalitarian incel crime, you know, killing the guy who was taking the most mates and this eventually developed into social norms that were like a quote-unquote moderate version of this and that's egalitarianism where people would mock they would they would try to attack the social status of more successful hunters in order to you know decrease um the likelihood of having to compete with them and that uh basically this leads to this is like basically a, the earliest manifestation of like egalitarian social norms right we're gonna pretend um everyone's equal um, because, you know, this, this was actually, you know, Malthusian times, pre-industrial times. It was mostly actually a zero-sum resource conflict. And so, you know, the, you know, the incels get mates and, uh, and the more successful hunters, they don't get, you know, brutally murdered. And this, this has happened for basically like most of human um, evolutionary time, right? Most of, especially pre-civilizational uh, human history. And that, you know, int- uh, introduced these kind of egalitarian, essentially like biological instincts. The moral of the story is, you know, uh, are you there? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Okay, yeah. The, the moral of the story, you know, is that if we really want to undo the problem, we will need at the very least gene editing. So, or, or, you know, another million years of selection, which uh, many people do not think we will have. <laughs> the, uh, I'm not the, sure if we want to get into that rabbit hole. The, uh, well, the intersection of software eating the world and egalitarianism eating the world is, is very interesting because what software does is it exacerbates, um, you know, uh, disparities because yeah yeah th- this is my favorite uh biology quote right like freedom and equality are and inequality are synonyms yeah right like the more options you give people the more abilities the more capacity you give people the more they're going to be chosen in different ways yeah and at the same time so it, it exacerbates disparities it, it codifies those disparities in like legible ways right it measures them. yeah, yeah, yeah. okay yep. yeah. right but then it also okay. presents ways to maybe fix them because it, it creates like control mechanism. And you can see like you know, DEI in some degree is like, it's this in the labor market, right? Like, um, you know, more efficient labor markets mean more inequality. Um, you know, like uh, the fact that we have labor marketplaces, you know, can like allows us to cut up, measure the, the disparity in really efficient ways. And because, you know, those um, same companies, you know, like can be captured by the government in all sorts of different ways. 
like they have to, uh, or, or they get to, depending on your perspective, um, enable um, mechanisms to redistribute or, or make it more egalitarian at, um, at scale. And so software is both an enabler of the inequality, but also enabler of the thing that can jump in to help fix the inequality. And it's kind of like a, uh, you know, whack-a-mole um, type, type um, situation. And, you know, people say that, you know, transgenderism leads to transhumanism or, or could be like, because, um, you know, and like gene editing is something that the left would be a pariah of the left. But if it's, if once it's in the hands of, Hey, we can actually like make people equal. Well, Hey, that, that's a pretty exciting idea for for certain, certain, you know, egalitarians. Right. Like so, the Harrison Bergeron. Yes. Yeah. That would be really a dystopia. Uh, <laughs> actually it'd be fun. Um, in that case, we just let China win. Um, China gets to inherit the earth. Um, well, it wouldn't be fine, but like, it would not be a dystopia. Yeah. Like, you know, you know, like if a regime wants to use gene editing to make people equal instead of better then like, China, China is the less evil power there. Yeah. The um, I, I, I'm I'm going to zoom zoom out because this this is the the fundamental question to me at least on, at the intersection of uh you know um, egalitarianism and meritocracy and, and this is this is actually Agnes Callard's question where she says you know mor- morality requires we maintain a safety net at the bottom that catches everyone but we also need an aspirational target at the top. So as to inspire us to excellence, creativity, and accomplishment. So moral worth needs to be for free, but also acquired or acquirable um, as to inspire people to do it. And so like those are, how do we reconcile those contradictions is the, is the task for how we reconcile, um, you know, egalitarianism and, and, and meritocracy or, or get the best of both. I think Christianity is pretty good. Like, I don't know, yeah. like so, so, some people on the right think, you know, like Christianity is slave morality, is slave morality, and it's leading to the level of egalitarianism we have now, like, you know, it's like a slippery slope argument. Um, given like my counter argument to that is like the stuff we talked about earlier, right? Hierarchy in the forest, it kind of always has been egalitarian. Um, in that view, right? Like Christianity was upstream of the enlightenment. It was upstream of the industrial revolution, right? Like the, the argument for Christianity is like no one, you know, basically that you have to go through merit or you have to go through it in order to reach merit. Right. Like, and I still don't think it's that bad of a system for, for kind of aligning the, the moral value at the end of the day. Right. Like I think, yeah. you know, it's been, it's been around for 2023 years. I think it could go for 2023 more, you know, I believe, you know, it'll go on for eternity until you know we're all uh we're all let into heaven but like i think just from like an empirical perspective as well you know like christianity does a good job of doing this um yeah i i, I do think it's ironic that the thing that replaced you know the slave morality of christianity was like more slave, more morality. slave morality yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Without checks and balances and and it was kind of like a bastardized version of of the slave morality parts of Christianity, and and maybe there'll be a bastardized version of um, kind of the 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 more master morality part of Christianity or or the less slave morality part because right right yeah. this is why I think Nietzsche's historical retelling yeah. is just wrong, right? Like he's kind of compa- comparing you know modern modern mass morality 
or like not modern as in like literally now, but like modern yeah. as in his contemporary mass morality to like the elite morality of days ago, right? Like like if Nietzsche, you know, like like I, I would wonder what he would think of like simultaneously having you know the worst slave morality, uh, but also having like at many elite levels, right? In many elite elite circles, um, especially like the capitalist elite, not necessarily the kind of you know. Um, not necessarily the social or the political elite, but but like the capitalist elite, where I think his morality or like what what his kind of like integrated morality uh, is much better adopted than like almost anywhere else in history. So yeah, I think I see like. I'd love to have, you know, a new, like Simone and Malcolm Collins, they've been on the show. They want to create a new religion. Uh, good, good luck with that. Um, and anything that is a new religion can't call itself a new religion. I think that gives it an attack vector. Like to the extent that you think. Right, like, right. Everyone's just going to call it a cult. Yeah. Um, and well, also we, we have separation of church and state. And so if you're a religion, sure. you know, like the most effective religions take over the state right or or you know penetrate the state so that's 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 the first mistake <laughs> right okay so we have we have a little uh less than 30 minutes left uh which which topic do you want to cover do you want to cover uh ai do you want to cover crypto you want to cover um interest rates um i think crypto would be cool but first i, I want to expand on my answer you, you asked me about sf politics and I said they're mostly, you know, self-interested and and sure. you know, um, not super electorally focused. But to the extent that there is a is a platform, I, w- I want to describe it a little bit um, on both a macro and micro way in terms of how I see it. Anyway, I, I think it's this like if I was just a riff for 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 a bit, it would be something like it's 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 okay to be an elite. <laughs> it's okay to want to be elite. It's okay to want your children to be an elite. Uh, you know. We're not racist. We're not sexist. Uh, you know, capitalism is good, actually. Tech is good, actually. Crime is bad, actually. Uh, <laughs> we shouldn't be forced to hire people who are not qualified. Um, you know, some taxes are fine, but government is a disaster zone and we shouldn't be keep feeding it more money. Uh, the schools should teach real topics, you know, like math and not indoctrinate kids. Pro math, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we need politics out of our companies, like stat um, of any kind. Um, and at the same time, let's not like relitigate things like abortion or gay marriage or immigration, things that make us seem like bad people to the people that we care about. Um, and in a, on a mic- more micro way, I, th- I think there's like, you know, you can look at the, you know, philosophies and practices of caring and empathy that dissolve into kind of veneration of victimhood and infect everyone with resentment and, and misery and, and see that it's a straight downward spiral of, you know, bitterness, envy. And you could say like, you don't need to live like this. <laughs> um, I think like, you know, we don't, we don't need to feel like this. You know, you don't need to feel miserable about yourself all the time. You, you, you this is kind of like the Georgeson Peterson, Silicon Valley, like, like, like you can, be normal and happy and non-judgmental and productive and satisfied. You can treat people 
in business as individuals and not feel the need to obsessively keep, you know, demographic scores or treat people like tokens. Uh, you're not racist. You don't need to think about race. You can make money. Um, it, it, in fact, making money shows you're doing something that other people value. You can donate some of it to help the less fortunate or as much as you want. And you could, you know, spend whatever you want to knowing that spending is helping other people provide for their families. You could say what you think. And if other people don't like it, they can go home and be upset, but you don't have to be. Other people can say things that offend you and you could shrug and move on with your life. It, you can make mistakes. They could be your fault. You can fix them. You can enjoy the spoils of your work. You can work hard and outcompete others and, and achieve great heights and not feel guilty about it. You can also choose to live a calmer life if you want to. I mean, the most ironic thing is that the, uh, you know, one of the most controversial topics in tech Twitter is, you know, how hard should you work? Um, which just shows like the core of the, the effort to divide. Anyways, I'm, I'm kind of rambling a bit, but those are some of the both, I think, macro like political takes and also some of the micro like, you know, how one should live one's life or how, 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 how we should approach one's life that I think comes out of a, you know, sort of technologist builder mindset. Right. It's interesting that you use that term because I actually had a, I had a conversation with a, with a friend about builder versus founder to, to me. Like I, I kind of have a negative taste in my mouth when I think of like the people who call themselves builders. Like, like I'm thinking of basically like the 2018 ish hackathon scene, which I was pretty skeptical. I actually think like this maybe is also a controversial take, but I think like monetization and like bounties and uh, crypto have been a net, like extremely net positive influence on the hackathon scene. Um, like pre crypto people don't remember that like the pre crypto hackathon scene was just like enormously busy work. And, you know, even if like the crypto stuff like is like, infrastructure that's not all that com technically complex and you know not like scientifically revolutionary in any way or form at least it's like worth something to someone right instead of literally being you know like side projects that are actually not functional in doing anything then make someone's resume look slightly more impressive yeah you you know a lot more than me on the uh on the hackathon front I, I really? Think, okay. I did not expect that. I, I do think builders, well, Hackathon is more of a younger man's game and more of a That's fair. That's game. fair. Um, I, I think the, what builder enables is just a wider, like if you're, if you haven't started a company, what do you call yourself? Okay. That's <laughs> and, fair. Yeah. That's, it's like, that's fair. Some people use the term operator, but that's like not that compelling. So I, 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 I mean, the more charitable view of builder is just that it's, more comprehensive to include people who do great work but haven't literally founded the companies sure yeah um so one of the one of the topics on this list uh reads crypto as esg for libertarians <laughs> uh, i'm sure uh we have not you know we, we have not pissed off all groups equally so uh for the sake of equity let's talk about crypto for the sake of intellectual diversity sure. in uh being annoyed at the takes in this podcast let's talk about let's let's talk about crypto uh first of all how much of crypto was a zero interest rate phenomenon the 
Well, it, it seems like um, a lot of crypto was, um, you know, accelerated by easy money. Um, and so, you know, the industry has, um, you know, contracted. Um, but, um, you know, we're not going to have high interest rates forever and, and um, good times will, will come back. So I, certainly a lot of the speculation was funneled by, by zero interest rates. Um, but also, you know, this woman, Carlota Perez, has a great, um, you know, uh, study of how different technological revolutions um, go through cycles. And one of those cycles happens with initial mania and a bubble right. that leads a ton of, you know, people to spend all this money on all these projects, some of which go nowhere, but others of which become like the critical infrastructure for um, the next hype cycle. And so right now there's a crypto winter in terms of, um, you know, capital invested and in terms of certain projects that relied on, on zero interest rates or, or you know, high, high yields. Um, at, at the same time, there um, there's, you know, a lot more purists and there's a lot more developer activity um, prior. So um, that's how I'd, uh, how I'd respond there. Yeah, the cynical take is that like AI was right there, right? It was lying there. It was, you know, um, and it just didn't have one like very effective proof of proof of concept yet. And then like like the main difference between kind of like AI state of the art, um, you know, like what was it? What you know, like twenty like summer twenty twenty two and AI state of the art now is like pretty negligible, but it was yeah. mostly just like really, first of all, releasing stuff to the public. And second of all, like having a really nice, clean proof of concept in ChatGPT. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, seeing, you know, there were countless people who switched from Web3 to AI, you know, just like that. Um, so certainly um, it was it was right under our nose and the combination of, you know, the markets tanking and thus, you know, financial, like fintech tanking alongside of it, inclu inclusive crypto also enabled um, or, you know, accelerated AI's, you know, mind share. But I, I think the ESG um, analogy is, uh, doesn't hold as much for me because ESG to me sounds like a way for finance people to seem moral or pure, um, but it's not really rigorous. Whereas they're not true believers um, or, or, or if they're true believers, they're, they're not like, like ESG is not built on, you know, interesting intellectual capital. Whereas I think crypto um, does have a much richer intellectual um, substrate to it. And it's also worth, you know, calling out that there are like many different substrates, right? Like the Bitcoin community, um, you know, builds off of the, liber you know, the Austrian economics tradition, you know, some libertarianism and is all about kind of depoliticizing de finance from, from governments or, you know, separating, right. um, you know, state and money, right? Whereas the Ethereum tribe is um, trying to, um, instead of focusing on depoliticizing from the government, they're depoliticizing from big corporations, right? And so, um, you know, the Facebooks and the, the, you know, the other centralized, um, you know, powers of the world that are in the private sector. And that's like a cursory reading, but they are, true ideological believers who are trying to manifest the world. Um, it's like a much more practical 
EA, I think, or like much more technical, much more practical um, and experimental um, version of, of, of having impact. So um, I see it as, as, as truly, you know, ideological people are trying to make, make, make a difference. The technology is not nearly there to the same degree that AI is, um, certainly. Um, AI is like major, you know, technological breakthroughs have been. Right. Like Peter Thiel famously said, you know, like crypto is communist or no, uh, AI is communist. Crypto is libertarian. If crypto were not libertarian, right. If the main, you know, like marketing around crypto was like CBDCs or whatever, central bank digital currencies or whatever. Right. And not like the Bitcoin intellectual tradition. What do you think that would have uh, affected in terms of investment in crypto? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good example of talking left, acting right, right? Like in terms of like, you know, it's a, it's a way of making a lot of money and it's a way of, um, you know, trying to do good at the same time. And, you know, uh, Daniel Gross said on a podcast recently, he was like, uh, you know, fire can be used for arson and it can be used for cooking. And so, you know, crypto can be used for libertarian ends and certainly the people who are working on it are trying to do it, but it can also be used for, state, you know, state control ends. And, um, and, you know, same with AI in theory, right? And so, yeah, wouldn't it be hilariously ironic if, um, if crypto was largely used for, um, you know, authoritarian ends, and, and maybe the opposite with, uh, with AI? If, uh, yeah, that's what Sam, Sam Hammond thinks will happen. Um, yeah, uh, I think that what's, what's very interesting is that, like, the narrative of profitability uh, around crypto became like the, the actual narrative, like the narrative of like making things that were not profitable before, like NFTs were kind of based on this, right. We're going to like finally make art profitable, right. We're going to, we're going to supercharge monetization, right. The, the narrative for making things profitable became what was profitable. Right. Like, so, so, so when you have these kind of like true believers, when you have like libertarian true believers, they induce kind of like a market shift in the same way that like political true believers induce like a, like a political shift. Right. Like that, that sounded like in my head, that sounded like an awfully bology like sentence. And I tried to make it less bology like, and it only became more bology like of a sentence. Man. I I think, I mean, a crypto that's non-ideological, maybe it just looks like fintech. Like fintech right, yeah. is, you know, there's a lot of capital in fintech, but they're just non-ideological about it. I mean, there's some, you know, types of companies that are trying to expand access and have, you know, strong optics and strong kind of a more egalitarian mission. But most of it is just like really practical people being like, hey, we're just going to focus on like making as much money as possible. Or, or And so, yeah, maybe that maybe that's what it'll look like. Yeah. And I should say, you know, like I went to ETH Denver. I respect the crypto people. I think I had a tweet that was something like uh, crypto is the most Straussian uh, or, or like movement I've ever seen. Everyone LARPs being low trust, but really I could leave my laptop anywhere and I, it would be there in a day. Um, yeah. yeah, very high trust community uh, and I am pro high trust communities. So it's uh, definitely great. Okay, um, we'll return a little bit to, to some of the earlier uh or some of the earlier topic and ask for some advice for young people. Um, this has been a very fun, I think, topic for like 
revealing how people think in, I think, in at least a less ideological way. But uh, what do you think are good steps for uh, young people in terms of dating? Good question. Um, well, I think I'm only going to speak to men here because I, I don't uh, I'm, sure. I, I don't know the women um, side as well. I, I think one thing I think to really appreciate about dating for men is that it gets a lot better as you get older. <laughs> and I think it's hard to um, fully appreciate that. And, you know, you can accelerate that, but basically like the, the more you have to offer to the world, the more successful you are, the more you're going to be an attractive person. And so you can try to, it's sort of like, you know, product and marketing. Like you could try to focus on marketing, like your clothes and, you know, um, sort of like certain ticks and stuff like that. And that's important. Like you should do that. Like marketing is really important, but like, you know, what you have to offer the world, i.e. the, like the product. Um, and that's not just your career, but career is really important. It's also like your sense of integrity, like your, you know, your values, like that is, you know, marketing, bad products, never going to work. And, you know, the cha challenge of a lot of like dating advice is it's really like short term. It's really like marketing focused. Right. So, I mean, I think it's like, you know, Naval even has this line. It's like, you know, if you want to marry an incredible person, be an incredible person. Like, you know, um, and so I think, you know, dating, so one, it's worth like figure, recognizing what is the long-term goal. Long-term goal is presumably a amazing partnership, you know, like marriage that could happen early on if you find the right person. It doesn't have to happen like right away. And the more that, you like work on yourself, the easier it will be. And I guess I'm, I'm implicitly talking to someone early on who's, cause you're saying, asking for advice, implying like maybe, maybe it's not coming super easily. And so, um, you know, like keep working on yourself, be patient um, and, and, and um, great things will come at the same time. Like I think friendship is a great way for a relationship to, to, to form like even knowing that you're looking for a long-term partnership, I think separates you from a lot of other men who are, who are not looking for that. And so getting to a place where you are looking for that, I think is more likely to lead you to, to happiness than kind of engaging in, in uh, fuckery. Uh, so I would probably get more serious early on. Um, I would surround yourself with the men that you want to be. And so I would, I would look at your I would encourage you to look at your circle of people um, and um, look at the influences that you have, you know, online as well and say, like, are these the men that I want to be? Like, do they have great partners? Do they have great, you know, relationships? Um, and, you know, it's much easier to change your environment than, than your insides. You, we, we tend to become the, the, the things that shape us, that, that are surround us. So I would, uh, I would focus on that as well as the, the personal growth. Any reactions to that? Right. I think... Hmm. I'm worried that like, how, how much do you think like becoming more valuable or, or like some people, I think that's definitely the case, right? Like, like young person with a startup versus like young person with a, you know, multi-million dollar company, definitely, definitely huge change in value. Right. Um, I'm not sure if that's true for like most, or like, I'm not sure if like the relative advantage in dating markets for most men 
is because of increases in their value versus just like relative and like true relative decreases in in women's value just in terms of like fertility right like like that's a cynical take on it is that like the market dynamics are just true or like the, the market dynamics reflect something real but like the thing that is real is that like for example if you want to have kids Right, your your prospects are just worse, right? right. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I'm I'm in support of you know finding someone early if you can. I mean, I think just a reality that people that may men may not understand is that like women are less likely to date down, so and date yeah. down on all areas. So like a woman who has a more successful career than you do, and not limited to career, but that's one big element to it, is 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 not going to date you probably, and so the more successful you are, the wider your pool is basically. And, and that, that's why like younger men are at a disadvantage relative to older men, among, among other reasons. Um, so, but I, I do gr- agree with you um, that relative, that yeah, the, the woman change is, is, is more significant. And of course that impacts, you know, male, um, op, you know, options. Um, right. And the second thing is like finding someone at all. Right. I think like, especially people in like similar, our mutual circles you know like share like like um either idea space or like uh startup space right honestly there's there's a pretty big you know there's a pretty big uh sex ratio there yeah it isn't i mean i I know it's super generic doesn't work for everybody like i do think dating your best friend or dating someone who could be a best friend i think is pretty good advice like you know, no individual person is going to be everything to everyone. And there's going to be, you know, as unromantic as it sounds like sacrifices on some dimension. Um, but if you have a best, like someone who's truly, you know, you would um, be super close with, even if you weren't dating because you just respect them so much, you appreciate them so much, you could handle the highs and lows with them. Um, you know, that, that feels like a pretty good thing to, to optimize for. And if, if, if you have the, the opposite feeling, like, I don't know how sustainable that dynamic is, you know, going through the, like thinking about who I can have a fun weekend with, or who you can have a fun year with is very different from who you can have, you know, a family with and, you know, build a life life with. And I think we don't really fully appreciate that. Like, you know, when we're young. Right. Good advice. Um, Last question of the show. Always the last question of the show. I'm sure you're prepared to some very good answers to this. Um, what is something that is too much chaos and needs more order and something that is too much order and needs more chaos? Um, it's a shame that I, I sh- given how much I enjoy the show, I, uh, I should have an answer prepped for it. Let me think for a minute. One second. Yeah, yeah. It's hard because we talked about so much. Um, yeah, usually I want something that we haven't talked about yet. I'm sure there are many examples that we have talked about. Uh, I think I really liked your saying about in order to protect the market, you need to like exit the market or like directionally where you're going with that. And I would love to see 
much more experimentation um, on that on that axis. Um, so I would love to see tech get more engaged with politics, with uh, policy, with culture, with education, things that don't like make them rich right away necessarily. Um, but, um, you know, protect the, the broader ecosystem and hopefully we'll present, you know, more options for them down the road. And so I would love to see more, I don't know if chaos is the right word, but certainly experimentation. Um, like I love that, you know, Barry Weiss and Joe Lonzo just said, Hey, screw it. Let's like make a new university. Um, or, and the team there that did that, like, I'd love to see much more of that. Um, and I think when something seems too ordered or too regulatory or too whatever, blah, not worth our time. Like that's where we need to, um, to see more experimentation because, you know, otherwise that, that order, that bureaucracy will just become even more cemented. Um, and then in right, terms right. Of, effective libertarianism. <laughs> yes. Um, and then in terms of what, um, has chaos and needs more order. I actually think, you know, one challenge in the tech community is that there all these companies are competing with each other like Facebook and Apple and Google and, you know, Microsoft and now OpenAI. like it's actually hard to have like tech as a class um, act together because those companies are trying to kill each other. <laughs> and so um, I think we need a better job. You know, uh, Balaji's talked about like a NATO for CEOs before. Like, I, I think we need more organization around like collective tech lobbying, so to speak. Um, in, right. in, a, in a productive way. need some way. class solidarity. Yes, exactly. I'm sure people love <laughs> this that. This is wonderful. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty good note to end on. Um, anything else you'd like to add before the end of the show? Um, the end of these four hours? I, I enjoyed this this conversation. I'm excited to see um, what you decide to, to do, uh, to do next. I appreciate that you, uh, you know, shared the, the the conversation that we had with, with, your, with your audience. And I hope you... Uh, continue to do so people who, who've made it this way have a strong uh made it this long have a strong connection to you and i think there will be a number of people who you'll be able to recruit um for for whatever you do um because of it so excited to uh to see you continue um to to follow your path yeah it'll be awesome and uh, i'll just leave this as a note for the ending this was by far one of the most enjoyable episodes so far I had a few podcasts that I think were still like very informative and very interesting, but for me were personally like pretty rough and pretty like, um, I felt like I made some mistakes, but for this one, it was, it was just very thoroughly enjoyable the entire way through. So yeah, thanks for, thanks for coming on. It was great. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Eric Torenberg. If you'd like to help us out, the number one thing you can do is to let a friend know, either in person or online. It's the best way to help the show, and hopefully you'll have a friend who's either interested in the same topics, has the same habits, and not only are you helping us out, but you're also helping your friend find something interesting and hopefully enjoyable as well. You can also help us out by leaving a five-star review on any podcast app, suggesting future guests in the comments, subscribing to my Substack, which is linked below, and if you want to catch another great episode next week, subscribing to the podcast as well, once again on any podcast app. If you do that, then you'll get another great episode next Monday. See you then.